How many colors are you eating? When we were living in Japan, I learned through a friend that mothers pack their lunches for their kids, but if the lunchbox arrives at school and there are not eight colors, yeah. eight colors yeah. in each child's lunchbox, and also like things that are shaped like a panda, <laughs> then they're basically given an F. Like they've just failed at packing lunch for kiddos because color is really, really important. And texture too, like having, you know, four or five different textures in your plate is one really easy way of just going like, great, I'm getting a variety of things and switching those things up from time to time. It's like a really easy way to go grocery shopping. You're like, great, I've got eight colors. I've got mm -hmm. something creamy, something crunchy, something crisp, whatever. Yep. That's one way of finding out where your gut is mm -hmm. and also consulting with, with medical professionals or Ayurvedic professionals or naturopaths yeah. that can help you to navigate that. Greetings, Earthlings. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cycling in Alignment. Today, my guest is the amazing Lentine Alexis. Lentine is a professional chef, a former professional triathlete, and she's lived in various foreign countries throughout her life. These experiences have given her a deep nutritional wisdom that she is now expressing in different forms, and we get to benefit from her passion. Lentine and I get into a variety of topics today, and I won't belabor the table of contents too much, but I will say that she's got a lot to offer, and I think it's also fair to say that she and I are on very much the same wavelength in terms of food. Don't worry, I won't only stack the deck in my favor and keep inviting guests that agree with me on most of the things I talk about. At some point, I'll be big and brave and strong and invite people who just straight up think I'm full of crap. But in the meantime, you get to hear my conversation with Lentine Alexis and our congruent lines of thought. Enjoy. So what's the title of your book going to be? We or is that still editing? We don't know yet. What are your, what are your so ideas? Maddening. Can you tell us your ideas? Yeah. So, so I've jumped all around because when I submitted the book proposal, I wanted the title to be Till It's Golden, mm -hmm. which is this principle, this idea that I'm sure we'll talk about, which is that if you're fueling for performance or life, it's you're the only one that knows what your body needs and you have to listen to it. You're the only one that knows mm. how much how hard you're going to have to push to get to the finish line mm. as fast like you know what your depth is, mm -hmm. you know what your breadth is and you, your body has the intuition to know what your body needs. Mm -hmm. And so long as you provide it with the ingredients, you can pick. You mm -hmm. got to trust. And it's and that name is entirely too nebulous for a large population of people. And Your editors told you that, didn't they? Yes. Random House is like, we can't sell books mm. like this. Which, and I'm like, okay, I get it. Because we, want, mm. we need to meet people where they're at. And, the, and, and you know, even in looking through the questions for this morning, like, and, and the things that pop into my direct messages, like, how do I feel? How do I, I'm, I have an injury. How do I feel for my injury? Yes. And we, and well, yeah, that's a really great question. But by the way, you don't do that much. if you're eating whole real foods that are yeah. not from packages and right. you're checking off these couple small blocks like you keep doing what you're doing you just don't go ride your bike for 100 miles and you let your body you like embrace healing hello, hello. right it's not it's not it's actually not rocket science and mm -hmm. in if you're a you know if you're competing on the world tour or you're an olympic athlete like yeah your nutrition needs to be really freaking dialed Right. And if you're an average person in the world, there's a few things that you should not do and a lot of things you should do. And it's pretty mm. easy. Mm. But trying to let people know that not being afraid of, of not being afraid of food 
is basically the key that you're unlocking to nutrition mm. is what we're trying to capture in this title, right? Mm. Like eat all the things, cook, be, don't be afraid to fail in the kitchen. You're not going to fail. Like you're going to make stuff that's great and don't be afraid of incorporating, you know, like milk that's from a really good source or meat that's from a really good source. Mm. All in moder all of those things in moderation. That because sort of so many dietary discussions are about limits right now, right? It's all about limits. And if you're trying yeah. to be unlimited, why are you limiting yourself? Mm. <laughs> you know, so like and if your body reveals to you that you can't you know that milk is not the right answer, well that your body's going to tell you that. But don't let some mm. book tell you that that's not right cuz the book doesn't know. So so the most recent title that I pitched was win-win. Um, the upside of whole food of whole foods intuitive eating for athletes and other overachievers, <laughs> which they're like that's kind of closer, but that's still not it. And so we'll get there. But what we want it to be crafty, and we want it mm. to be able to meet super high end. We want we want it to be able to speak to a high performing population of people that are going to crack it open and go like, cool, where's the one answer? Mm -hmm. And hopefully what they find is this nugget of wisdom that is like. The answer's in you. The answer's in you. Sorry. I know that's maddening and I know that's scary, but the answer's in you. And here's some recipes for you. Here's mm -hmm. a whole codex of how to unlock cooking for yourself in a like safe way with tons of options. And mm -hmm. you can dabble in veganism if you want you can dab whatever mm -hmm. you want to follow like there's stuff for you in this book mm -hmm. but these are all right answers and there's right. no one like here's your path forward path here's your forward. the problem is there's so many variables so many levers to push in a diet it's really hard to know like well mm -hmm. i think i'm allergic to cow dairy but i don't really know because yeah. In this circumstance, I ate it and it was fine. And this one I ate, it was a total disaster. But yeah. was it this or was it the extra sugar yeah. or was it the blah or the blah or the this yeah. or the that? And so here's the thing that's fascinating about that and something I'm learning, I've am learning, i been learning about a lot in the past mm. few years is that oftentimes that has very little to do with the food. Right. And has a lot to do with the emotion that we've put behind the food or all the things that are happening in our lives that have nothing to do with our sport mm. and nothing to do with the actual food itself. Like mm. that, you know, but that said, like food is whatever you're eating becomes you. So when you're like, cool, I'm just going to grab that like kind of lame burrito from the freezer aisle. And like, that's going to be fine. And it's mm -hmm. easy. Mm -hmm. Like, cool. You want to be your best and you're just going to pick the easy route. That's what you just did. That's the equation that you just created. Yeah. So cool. Good for you. And that's going to be how you perform. Like you pick this, this half-assed thing, fruit. you're going to yep. have a half-assed result. Right, right. And if you're like, cool, I'm going to really prioritize mm. where I'm like, you know, if you're going to prioritize your training, you're going to prioritize all the other elements in your life. Mm -hmm. If you're not prioritizing where you're getting your ingredients to cook, whatever it is, like if it's a bowl of cereal, right? Right. It's all, it all proves positive. Mm. But, but so many of the, you know, the response, like the way that your body will respond to milk one day on a super stressful day when you be, yeah. had a bunch of wine for dinner or you like didn't eat properly the day before or you have a bunch of, you know, that's going to- Or you're stressed be, out about- You're stressed out or you whatever. were just sick yeah. or whatever it is, that's going to be different than it was tomorrow. Like mm. in the book, we, I'm calling this a life cocktail where you literally have like a grid of all of the things that go into the amount of like stress on your day to day. Mm. And it's not just physical training stress. It's also like, what are your relationships like? Mm. like did you sleep well? Are you breathing properly? All those things that really mm -hmm. relate to how your body is functioning and how your body can even process the foods you're putting in. And, mm -hmm. and also then the wild part about it is that it's not terribly scientific. Like we don't have, you can't really scientifically prove <laughs> that the anxiety you're feeling from your relationships, no, 
impacts your digestion, but we do know that there is a physical response to stress. And we do know that that restricts muscles and that that changes chemistry. So there is a connection, but it's tricky to like get, like I've talked to Alan about this where I'm like, how do we test this? He's like, I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's Dr. Alan Lim, right? Yeah. 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 Cool. So he was my third guest, fourth, somewhere in the single dig. Yeah, single area. dig. So yeah, love he's worth, very worthwhile of a single dig. Absolutely. In any case, yeah. yeah, he was great. That gets straight into some really core concepts. I think that I'd love to unpack your thoughts on. As far as in my mind, there's a paradigm in the athletic world of thinking of food as gasoline, as fuel, yeah. right? And at the pro tour level, or the you know, if you're being paid to ride your bike or run, swim, and ride your bike, and or whatever sport you're doing at a very, very high or elite level, there is kind of more of a, like we just, there's a point when you're you're burning so much, mm-hmm. you're so active that we need to process fuel, we need to refuel the tank. Mm-hmm. And so I think of it as a spectrum, but I think that mindset is really per- perhaps a bit contagious or even um, it infiltrates the mindsets of athletes who aren't performing at that level, but because we, we have this natural human tendency to emulate people at the highest level of sport. I mean, that's normal and that's healthy. Like mm-hmm. how do you, if you want to become a really good time trialist, you know, look to study, the best. just yeah. look at who won the women's world time trial championships and go, Hmm, what does she look like on the bike? And what do the rest of the top 10 look like and study them and see what they're doing and see the equipment they're using and the position they're holding and all those things you can mm-hmm. find out on their blogs or their interviews or their podcasts. Mm-hmm. That's a great method to do it. But also, we can't assume that those all those methods will trickle down to the person who's training eight hours a week for their local, whatever, Cherry Absolutely. Creek time trial series. Absolutely. And because uh, an elite woman or man might be training 15, 18, 22, 30 hours a week sometimes on the bike, yeah. they're consuming three, four, 5,000 kil- – they're burning three or four or 5,000 kgs a day on a, on a solid – of training Mm -hmm. and they've also built a base for however many years to get their bodies to 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 that that point point where they now require that amount of fuel correct not i'm gonna do a marathon i decided today yeah it's my first one ever how do i feel for this thing and there's a lot of nuance so much nuance right like you know i mean watching sorry to interrupt Mm. um when we were so i was the um culinary director at Scratch for quite some time. And mm-hmm. my primary role was pushing around, not literally with my hands, but effectively dri- being a driving force behind the food trailer that we would roll to events like the Tour of California. We were cooking for the mm-hmm. athletes. Mm-hmm. And and there are a lot of, and, and I, was, I was not involved in world tour cycling as an athlete when I was racing, but getting that peek in was fascinating because it's really very much like, if you're not on your bike, you are sitting down. You are not moving, you are not walking anywhere. You are having whatever you need be brought to you and you're, you're literally on a schedule where you're going to, you could speak to this, mm. you're gonna ride your brains out, you're gonna refuel, you're gonna get your body work done and you're gonna lay in your bed and you're gonna go to sleep and you're gonna wake up the next day and do that. Rinse, wash, repeat. Absolutely. And any normal human being that lives a life is also moving around all day, has to walk, has to have things brought to them. They're not fixated strictly on just what's happening on and off the bike. The the life of a world tour athlete is being lived on the bicycle. And that's not true for a normal, for a, a 
in air quotes, normal person. Mm -hmm. These are very, very different nutritional needs and very different lifestyles. And mm -hmm. so the idea that we would try to like, go like, cool, it must be what you're eating. Right, doesn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Right, right. agreed. Yeah. So on that one extreme, we have that fueling mindset, which is sort of driven by necessity mm -hmm. to make sure that the World Tour athlete, when they are at in zone three for an hour and a half and zone four for an hour of a long stage of, in the middle of a three week stage race, mm -hmm. they just need a boatload of, a boatload of calories. calories. And, and they can almost be from anywhere. And they can almost be from anywhere. That <laughs> Or the, the saying I heard a million years ago from, I don't, rec I don't remember where I heard this from. I think it was a woman and I think it was someone with some dietary expertise. If someone knows where this quote came from, mm -hmm. let me know. But she basically said, if the fire's burning hot enough, you can throw almost anything in. And that is also a very dangerous paradigm to trickle down to yes. most other humans because these people are already, by definition, the 0.1%. Mm -hmm. They're already high-level compensators. They're performing at the world level. Mm -hmm. And what they're doing is working oftentimes, also the other rule, I think, to get totally sidetracked with multiple tangents in a row. You're welcome. I'm paying attention. Is, well, I'm tracking. <laughs> <laughs> so on the other end of the spectrum is the concept of, in contrasting to food as fuel, food as gasoline, is food that contains life force energy, food that contains chi, food that nourishes your soul, food that helps you, that is gentle when you are stressed by life conditions. Mm -hmm. uh, food that is more challenging when you're ready, when you need fire, when you want to stoke the cauldron, mm -hmm. when you want to really get things going and kindled, right? And food that's a, that uh, is more nutritionally dense, uh, lower in total calories, but nourishes, but gives us that, well, that life force that we need to negotiate life and to thrive and to be our best self and to heal, mm -hmm. right? I mean, keep in mind, like, World Tour athletes are making an intentional choice to annihilate themselves for a cause. They're myopically focusing all their time, energy, and attention towards a single, a single goal, whatever that is, you know, the Tour de France or Worlds or... And, and other people, while we have athletic goals and pursuits and desires, we also have things like families and jobs and responsibilities. Not that World Tour athletes don't have those things, but... To be realistic, they're prioritizing their athletic pursuits. They have to by definition. So um, I think there's a big contrast there between we could say, how do we how are we gonna term this this teeter-totter, this spectrum? Food is fuel on one side and food is nourishment on the other. Is that the right terminology? I hadn't um, this has been a, a paradigm I've been discussing with other guests and thinking about in my head for a long time, but I haven't really come up with the ideal term for the other side. I don't know if you have Me too. That's why that. we don't have a name for the book. <laughs> <laughs> because there's something in between, right? In my yeah. opinion. There's something in between, which is Balance. that. Yeah. Well, so food is fuel. Of course. Yeah. It is fuel. Yeah. Absolutely. It mm -hmm. is. We require it to function. Every single thing that you do in your day requires a calorie, a nutrient that you've put into your body to activate it, right? Mm -hmm. Me speaking right now, if I hadn't eaten breakfast or hadn't had a cup, whatever it is, yeah. every single minute thing we do, every single emotion we have, every single response that we have in our world requires nourishment. And mm -hmm. that is the mm -hmm. that is the nourishing part of food. And I keep looking for a word that's not nourishment because I feel mm -hmm. like that, it feels somehow like there's butterflies flying around. It's not grounded enough. For whatever reason, it is a grounded word, but I want there to just be something that that 
exemplifies the fact that food is multidimensional and we are multidimensional beings and something that gets left out of the picture of a world tour athlete who is using food as fuel. There is a tremendous emotional and maybe even spiritual drive that is fueling that athlete to be able to push themselves that way. Mm -hmm. And for a period of time in their lives, they're able to tap into that. And that's a really important nutrient <clears throat> for the recipe that is this person being able to push themselves to the absolute limit. And if you have never been an athlete performing at a high level, you don't maybe recognize that that is something you have to have, which is this, I am absolutely going to do anything and everything in my power to find the, my top and my bottom, right? Like right. the depth of my human experience. That's something that we don't talk about with world tour athletes it's pretty difficult to tap it's also very personal right yeah so without the fuel in air quotes that they're putting in they can't tap into that mm -hmm. and so to to sort of dumb down their fueling to say like oh cool they're eating a lot of salad or they're eating a lot of rice or they're eating six eggs and they're on a super like high fiber or low fiber diet today so they're going to cut weight like that's that is our society basically like What's the word that Michael Pollan uses? I think it's something like uh, the like nutrification or like the reductionist nutrition yeah. theory of um, of basically Western food, right? Yeah. Where we've gone cool. Here is and this happened. This started happening in like the 1800s when we figured out what nutrition science was. And we're like, mm. oh, cool. Here's an apple, and here's the valuable things in the apple. And if we just take those things out. We can basically mainline them yes. and we don't need to worry about all the other stuff. All that inconvenience of all that All that inconvenience of the apple. Well, great. <laughs> so if so if you can now take a pill that gives you that philosophical, emotional, spiritual drive to be the effing best yeah. on the planet, mm. then you've unlocked nutrition theory. That's but you so backwards thinking. But you can't. Yeah. So so to mm. so to recognize that whatever it is that's in there, it, there's something else, right? There's another ingredient. And from my personal perspective and and in my like history and like journey as an athlete, mm. adding the like joy and whimsy and wonder and cutting out basically cutting out the idea that I know better or that a box knows better or that or that human science a has lab. a food lab has unlocked the the secrets to how to be the best human being when no human being created human beings right to me is sort of this like i don't know but if i keep trusting this that there's something bigger than me and if i can just keep trying to get a little closer to that thing whatever it is whatever the shape is whatever the emotion is then i will become closer to being my best version of myself. Yes. And that means not worrying, that means being frankly more afraid of that big thing, whatever it is, mm. than whether or not I'm eating brown rice or white rice, or whether <laughs> or not I'm eating more gluten or no, no gluten, or whether or not like, is this gonna derail, like, is this gonna derail my diet? Because probably the anxiety that I'm loading on myself about like, I ate the ice cream cone. Mm. Shit, mm -hmm. it's done way that. heavier Guilty. than just mm. eating the ice cream cone. Yeah. And, you know, just going for it. Eating an ice cream. Yeah. So anyway, so in answer to your question, in this very broad spectrum, I think there are, I think there are untangible dimensions that we do not factor into our nutrition. And that is ridiculously challenging. And it's it, almost impossible to quantify, but it's effectively the, like, the human spirit, and, right? Yep. yep. And whatever we do with part. the nutrition yeah. that we're absorbing yeah. and how we're getting it from 
from the plant, from the other animals and plants that are around us, how we're getting it from the relationships in our lives, how we're getting it from so many different places, and to sort of believe that that energy, whatever it is, doesn't impact our performance is a bit insane, in my opinion. Agreed 100%. It's, um, you are what you ate, ate, right? Yeah, you are what you ate, ate. Yeah. You totally are. (laughs) (laughs) And I love how you're using the term ingredient both literally and metaphorically because I think that's really important to recognize. Thanks. Maybe that's a book title. I'm I'm recreating my notes. (laughs) If we come up with a book title as a result of this discussion, that would be so awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. Uh, Let's let's rewind now that we went forward. Now we're going to backpedal. And I'd love for you to unpack your journey, the places you've lived, the cool adventures you had. Uh, you were a pro triathlete for a while. You lived in Japan for a while. You worked at Scratch for a while. Will you mm-hmm. tell us about that? I want to give our audience some context on sure. who is Lentine and how did she get <laughs> to have all these amazing philosophies and ideas about food and what yeah. inspired you to become a chef? Yeah, so um, I'll try my best to kind of nutshell or patchwork quilt together. With, um, I hope, little tiny little, details little deep down dives. the important parts. Yeah, yeah. totally. Um, but maybe I'm an old person, but I don't feel like a very old person, but I have had a lot of like pretty cool experiences in my life. My parents are not terribly athletic, but I, from a very, like, there's, there's probably a lot of reasons why I was always driven to do things like go hike up Green Mountain as early in the morning as I could get up there. Or, you know, I was a swimmer in high school. I went to Boulder High. Um, I was always a person that sort of liked facing challenge and specifically physical challenge. And from a and it was and my mom was an amazing cook, but it was definitely like something unlocked for me. I at one point in time figured out that I felt better when I put good stuff in. And I figured that out in high school and probably and frankly dove down in in a really dangerous direction where it was like, great, if I'm like affect you know and I'm ra- I was training and racing at a relatively high level in high school mm-hmm. and you know racing like state not you know national Swimming, qualifier still talking about right mm-hmm. yeah. yeah um and we were a pretty competitive team and um you know if I did little things on in the off season like go for extra runs like I noticed my strength in the pool and if I was really careful with like not eating the huge face-sized cookies in the cafeteria, mm-hmm. I typically felt better in practice. And so those sorts of things I really started watching really early on and went to college on the East Coast. And um, so you were you were crafting an intuition about how the I, foods you, food choices you made impacted your health and the, the feeling you had. Yep, totally. Great. But I also was. I also was doing it really dangerously at that point in time. And by that, I mean, like, I would read the ing- like, we'd have crackers in the house, and I would read, like, the number of calories in a serving of crackers and, like, mm-hmm. count out my 12 crackers, right? Mm-hmm. I didn't have an, I didn't have another guide. Like, I didn't have a nutritionist who was, I was working with. And that, and watching it that way proved positive for me. Uh, but it also created a lot of fear of food because I was noticing, I was noticing success when I was measuring and not when I was just, like, you know, being a regular old teenager, like I was competitive mm. and wanted to be. And so I went into college and was um, quickly, I was eager to leave swimming and was quickly sucked up by a varsity rowing program um, on the East Coast. 
I had altitude lungs and I was super strong and really small. So I became the stroke in our eight, eight women shell mm-hmm. and we crushed it. Like we were an amazing, amazing team. And um, I was the freshman that they were like, who are you and what are you doing? And, and my coach, um, my coach was from Russia actually. And had been working with athletes in Alaska, had like, and I'm using those examples to basically identify the fact that they've been working in very harsh environments okay. <laughs> with different philosophies. And there was no map for how to train and educate young women on how to feel their bodies mm. at that time. Mm. So there were lots of really mixed messages about how food played a role, you're in college, so there's all sorts of other like, cool, like we're gonna be a dry boat, and we're like, we're a dry program, but there's lots of other things that challenge you in that time in your life, and there was no conversation about it, none. And they also kind of wanted us to look like tin cans. So yeah. they were feeding us to look like, t- like they were they were making suggestions to us so that we would be short, stocky, powerful women. Mm-hmm. And we would show up at like at the NCAA championships and I am 5'5". Five, five, and the other strokes in the boat would be in the other boats from whatever Brown, Stanford, UCLA were like five, nine, or 10 mm. and weighed 180 pounds or 190, you know, they were wow. big, they were football player sized women. Uh-huh. And my my co- coach is like, cool, so how are you gonna outpull this chick? And right. that was a very unhealthy, like, I'm not her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm totally not her, I'm five five and I weigh 130 pounds. Like, I'm going to be a different type of athlete. Especially in rowing, which is so contingent on that lever arm. Yep. I basically took this philosophy that I had built for myself, or this impression that I had built for myself, that paying attention to food really, really closely was going to be a key to my success, and then transported it to college when all of when I didn't have anything that I could trust. And now I was also in an environment where I wasn't eating food from home. My mom wasn't cooking for me anymore. Cafeteria food. You know, I was eating cafeteria food. And what did it mean when when you say they wanted you to look like a tin can, meaning they wanted you to pack on muscle? They wanted us to pack on muscle. What did did that look like specifically? Were they telling you to eat white chicken breasts or Uh, tons of steak or, or? Yeah, so like I remember getting back on the bus after an event and having like, if you're from the East Coast, you've ever been to a Wegmans, like they would buy Wegmans yeah, yeah. subs for us mm. and basically be like, cool, here's your like full Wegmans, you know, tons of processed meat, very few vegetables, lots of carbohydrates. And there was just no sense in it. Right. Mm. And when you are and and you're hungry, like yeah. you're really, really hungry. You just whatever blowing yourself up. Mm-hmm. There just wasn't there wasn't a discussion on what different things did for your body and also learning to trust your intuition. It was just sort of like, here's the food you've got for the day. Go, Go for it. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so there were definitely, there was definitely like a, f- a fear of food that I had developed now. And to make that worse, I started studying, um, my degree from William Smith is in, uh, it was a dual degree in, social ecology and economics, and I fixated predominantly on food systems. Mm. I wanted to understand, I was already curious about food. I wanted to understand how our society had built the food system that it had Mm. and how that impacted the planet ecologically. And that definitely has threads in what I'm doing now, just in a different way. But so I was doing a lot of study into genetically modified substances, where our foods were coming from. And that was all really new science. Like, you know, reading the jungle was like crushed me because here I'm at practice. I'm at practice, I'm being 
off or I'm, I'm at a, an event really I'm at a race and I'm being provided with this one food source which is processed bread processed meat no green vegetables no there's no like there's nothing vibrant in this piece of food right and I know that vibrant food is something that I really want and I don't know where to find it and I'm trapped on this college campus and it was a, it was really like I would go to the grocery store and shop for myself and be like I don't know what I can eat here because I don't want to eat anything that's you know I don't want to eat anything that's been kind of, I just want, like, I just want really pretty food. And I couldn't find it anywhere. I started driving from Geneva to Ithaca, New York, where there was a co-op. And I would basically go every weekend when I could. And I would buy all my groceries for the week. Mm -hmm. And I would bring them back to my, you know, dorm or whatever it was. And that was a really isolating, that was isolating, right? Because now I need this special food that I can't get anywhere else. And it was something that I really appreciated. And a few other people on campus did too. But no one on my sports team, like no one on my rowing team appreciated that. They were like, I'm just going to eat gummy bears and pasta. Like, right. what's the problem Who here? Who cares? And so mm. so it was, so there was this push-pull of like, I knew that I was on to something, but I had completely, I had completely separated myself from all other people trying to abide by this specific thing. And because I, no one was else involved, there was no other like commensality involved in the sharing of this food. That wasn't your intention. Your intention was just to fuel yourself with food that you felt would nourish you and that felt authentic, right? It's yeah. just that the separation occurred as a result of the distance. Yeah, well, it was also to make the decisions that I felt like were good for my, like, you know, I mm. wanted to do something that felt good. Like I wanted to feel good about the choices I was making in school, mm -hmm. I wanted to do my best, right? I wanted to know I was doing my best. And I sort of equated this, like, I know I'm not doing my best if I'm just willing to do this thing that I know, you know, eat this thing that I know is going to make me feel like crap yeah. later. And um, it was, I was placing a lot of control in my life. It was really valuable in some ways, but also damaging in others because, again, I literally created this, like, structure where I had to be in control of it all the time mm -hmm. and couldn't just go with the flow and couldn't, you know, couldn't find, ha didn't feel yeah. empowered to find solutions in the environment that I was in and also didn't feel empowered to speak up. Like, now, what if I would have just gone to my administration and been like, hey, there are gorgeous farms all around. Why are you not feeding us, like, that spinach that I'm riding my bike by whenever I'm mm -hmm. riding to camp, you know? I was I was so fixated on the fueling piece of that, and I was so ta taxed with school and training. I didn't have any space to think outside of that box. I see. Does that make sense? So it was like yeah. it was. There were some good lessons in there, but it was also yeah. really really limiting. Looking back on it in retrospect, you can see that, right? Yeah. Uh, I think that's a very parallel experience in some ways to what my daughter's going through in college. I would under, I would believe that. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, she goes to the cafeteria and she can see that same kind mm -hmm. of lifeless food everywhere that comes out of boxes and mm -hmm. chicken breasts that have been, you know, so hard come from a factory farm and have been on a truck frozen for yeah. two weeks or months and months. Yeah, totally. Years, possibly. Totally. And it's just lifeless food. And she's like, how do I solve this equation? How do I feed myself in a way that's going to be mm -hmm. authentic but without? And then she has similar experiences. She's got roommates and friends who are, they'll go into the city together for a day and she'll be like, I want to eat here. And they'll yeah. be like, that's way too expensive. Yeah. We're not eating that. Yeah. Why do you want to eat that stuff? Let's just, who cares? Who cares? Yeah. And it's this very like, you know, as a young person and as an athlete, there there are like different circles that you find yourself in, right? And you mm -hmm. want, I definitely wanted to be like, I wanted to have friends. You want to have friends. <laughs> that's normal. And I wanted to share experiences with yes. people. Um, but I did feel like doing that sacrificed something that, was really very much a part of who I am and how I wanted to be in the world. Mm -hmm. And that that posed some it's a tension. problems. Yeah, it was a real right. tension. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I left school. I ended up getting an internship 
very much on a whim, like, and it happened really fast. I had been looking for jobs around, you know, in the United States, wanted to work for a nonprofit, wanted to work in food, didn't find anything or was basically beat out for the positions that I wanted by people that had master's degrees, that sort of thing. So one night in my mom, you know, like I'm in my mom's house and I hop on the computer and I'm probably like underage drinking wine from our kid, you know, whatever it is. I apply for an internship at a small newspaper in Torino, Italy. And the next morning I wake up and they want to interview me for the job. Awesome. And in two weeks, and I get it, and in two, and two weeks later I am on a plane and I'm flying to Europe. I've never been there before. And mm-hmm. my mom goes with me and it's this like, it's this huge, you know, adventure that I'm off on and I'm, go- and I'm going by myself. And I was in Italy for about a year and had, and some of the same themes that had come up before, you know, like now I'm immersed in this culture where food is very different than our reductionist thinking of like, cool, like I'm going to piece together all the macronutrients and I'm going to read the labels. Like I was living in, um, you know, Torino at that time was before the Olympics. And um, so there was very little English spoken there. And strangely, I had been hired by this newspaper because I spoke Spanish and the newspaper wanted me to conduct, this is very Italian, conduct interviews with Italians living all over the world and to translate those interviews about just kind of what their life experiences were, right? Like, oh, cool, like you're living in New York City. Like, you you look like you have an Italian last name. So like, what's your life like in New York? Mm. Translate the interviews out of English into Spanish so that my colleagues who also spoke Spanish could translate, translate them back into, into Italian because I didn't speak a lick of Italian. And <laughs> it was this like, are you serious? This is how we're really going to do this. But cool. You want right. to hire me to do this? I will totally do it. <laughs> so I had a couple of Italian roommates and rent, you know, rented a room from, you know, in a tiny little apartment, kind of like one, you know, corner of the city and mm-hmm. would walk for every morning 45 minutes to my office and mm. walk back and in the morning usually I would go for a run along the river which our apartment lo- overlooked and I was the only woman out running in the morning and I was one of the only people running in that part of Italy and people were just kind of looking at me like you're insane and I'm wearing like trail running shoes and you know technical clothing and they just yeah. thought I was nuts and my colleagues also were like this is a little weird like why are you doing that again like you sweat right like that seems Someone chasing you? Yeah, someone chasing you. Why are you running? Um, And I had to figure out how to feed myself. So, Mm. you know, and I couldn't, and and grocery stores look different, you know. There was no big, like, parking lot that you park in. There's no massive fluorescent aisles. So I kind of had to navigate that. And the most wonderful part about the the zone of the city that I lived in was that there was a market um, every Wednesday and Saturday, and I would go to the market and had to that's basically where I learned to like speak an outdoor Italian. market, right? Like an outdoor yeah. market. And so I would buy spinach by the kilo that had yeah. never been washed. I would take it home to my big, you know, like small Italian kitchen, but it had a huge sink and I would like rinse it. Mm-hmm. And I had no way of drying it. So I'm laying it out in all these towels and never really got it dry. So I was eating like wet salad all the time or like blending it up. Weird, weird, my weird meals. And occasionally I would cook for my roommates and food became, food became a really big piece of my experience there. And I w- and I watched myself. The more and more I kind of got out into restaurants and and did things that scared me, like order in broken Italian from a waiter who spoke no English, or like kind of pointy talkied my way through mm-hmm. a menu, or just tried to tried to navigate my basic needs. A lot of which were buying food ingredients. Um, 
the more empowered I felt that I could just travel anywhere. I, I, I was like, I don't care how you're looking at me. You know, it's okay for me to mess this up. Like, it's okay for me to mess it up. Mm. I, and because I didn't have the guidelines of American food culture to, you know, point me in the right direction, I also had to be a lot more brave about like, okay, I'm going to eat whatever this, I don't know what this is, but I'm going to try it. Right. And it was this massive shift in my mm-hmm. thinking to the idea that the more brave I was, the more I was rewarded for just being brave and especially stepping outside the box. And it also proved positive that food was a real, it was basically what connected me to that place. Like, you know, I had colleagues and I had made some friends there, but but the ways that I would spend the, my time when I'm not in the office was I would go to markets and I would pop my head into stores and I would buy this treat or order a gelato cone or whatever it was. Food grounded me in that place. Mm. Um, and the longer and longer I was there, I would I would basically pack a bag on Friday morning with an idea of someplace in the country that I thought I wanted to go. And I would walk to the train station after work and buy the next ticket to wherever mm-hmm. the train was leaving for. And I would spend the weekend in some other place totally by myself. And it was... It was um, it was amazing and so so empowering mm-hmm. and a lot of it had to do with just being able to trust that I could step outside my food boundary because mm-hmm. you know I, what if I couldn't find a salad where I was going what if I can't find this virtuous thing I had to trust that this place really had a food soul that aligned with my own and I was right there were people there who there ate were people food there and who ate and food and lived and thrived mm-hmm. and and I dove in like head first. That's awesome. Yeah, it was what awesome. Amazing experience. Yeah. So I was there for a year. I moved back home. Um, my partner at the time was actually in the military and he had received his first duty station mm-hmm. and he was going to be going to Okinawa, Japan, forward deployed. And we decided to get married because the the way that his role was structured is if something happened, I would never know. His, no one would ever know unless you're a wife. Uh-huh. Unless you're his wife, you don't get to find out any of the details. And even as his wife, there were a lot of details that I was not privy to. But we decided to go together, um, which was one of the best decisions that either of us have ever made, even though we are not together anymore now. And so about, I guess a year after I moved back from Italy, we moved to Japan. We were there for about five years. And within 10 days of moving there, um, he was sent, he was deployed sent away. We didn't have a house yet. We didn't have a car yet. Um, we had made the decision to live off base in, you know, the Jap- in the Japanese community. And effectively, I was learning two new communities because we were both expatriates and part of the military community. And I could access both mm-hmm. as a SOFA status member. So I could go on base and I could buy groceries there or I, or, and I could go to yoga class or I could use the gym or anything I really needed. I could go to the military base and get it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I could also function as a person living in Japan if I wanted to. And I try to do the latter mm. most. Um, the military culture was tr- crazy for me to navigate. I feel really, really lucky that I got to be part of it. Mm. But it was wild to, you know, like a typhoon would hit the island and everybody would get locked on base. You just trust that they're like, cool, everybody's getting locked down. You're going to, st- the sun is shining. The island is functioning, but everyone on this base is going to be locked down because we want to be able to know where you are. Something about that, just like, you mean I don't get to make any autonomous decisions myself? (laughs) So it was cool to be able to have the, not the crutch, but kind of the crutch of military support. Yeah. Um, Mm. And so he was gone. He was gone. And I, again, had to kind of figure out how to navigate this super foreign place. And I had deferred a graduate degree by that time in um, international policy and and really wanted to study food systems. Um, 
out of, you know, to get a master's degree in it. Uh, I deferred the program so that I could go abroad and basically was like, cool, I'll just learn some Japanese and I'll work in Japan and I'll come back and I'll be an even more valuable candidate for this right. particular stamp that I want on my head. Mm-hmm. When I got over there, I realized that I wasn't able to work because I was a SOFA status member. So I couldn't work in the Japanese economy. I could work on base, but mm. otherwise I was basically going to be a military wife. Mm. And that was what that, that's what I was invited to do. And um, that didn't feel like enough. Okay. So I sort of floundered around for a little while and had a lot of space to just think and do and move and whatever and and feel sorry for myself probably a little bit because I was alone and I was scared and mm-hmm. you know we lived in this super cool little Japanese paper house with a beautiful hibiscus garden in it in the middle of a sugarcane field I mean it was this place is still uh, is still like such a it's such a, a a symbol of like a way to live a life for mm. me even now um, and I was in this beautiful place and he was in a very dangerous place almost all the time mm-hmm. and figuring out how I could like basically arrive to where he was at so I could relate to him even though he was so far away Mm. was something that I think subconsciously I was trying to do. Mm. Um, I, you know, I, I couldn't, I wasn't competing anymore at that point in time. I had really pursued this super high level degree and couldn't do that. So I'm sort of like, what is my worth here? Mm. And I ended up, um, buying a used time trial bike that was too small for me mm-hmm. from another military wife who'd had a couple kids and she wasn't using it. And I started riding it around the island to just like explore. And not that dissimilar from my experience in, in Italy, the more I would kind of explore and push myself, the further from, away from home I would get. And the more I would encounter some fear of like, what if I don't say this right? Or what's that thing? And I don't know how to do this. And, and you know, those things weren't quite as scary when you just sort of like, okay, I'm going to just take small bites of whatever this is. Mm-hmm. And um, military culture is super physical in like the ways that the community expresses itself. There's always like a 10K race or like some, you know, triathlon going on or a three-legged race, whatever it is. <laughs> and um, I signed up to do like a little sprint triathlon on the base because I was like oh cool like I've been running as cross training for rowing and I've always been a swimmer so why don't I give this a try and had a really easy time of it and and was like well this seems like something I could kind of aim you know I could why don't I try like I'll try to apply myself in this way mm-hmm. and so signed up to do whatever it was like the equivalent of a half Ironman on or another remote island so there was this whole training process and how was I going to get there and I ended up winning the race um and was hooked like oh cool like this is something that i can this is some place where i feel like i'm proud of myself and i can find value in it and um what i'll do this like this is what i'll do and so i set my sights on racing an ironman in china maybe six or seven months later and now all of a sudden i'm training mm-hmm. and training a lot and and at that point in time ironman felt like a really really long way like wow that is like I'm gonna ride my bike 120 miles and then run a marathon like yeah how do human beings even do that mm-hmm. um, and so again my process is like I kind of dive back into the things that I think I know about food and um, facing challenge and facing you know fear or whatever and all the things that are immediately available to me in Japan do not look like what I had been sort of conditioned to believe was healthy for me. Mm. You know, the restaurants down the street are big bowls of ramen with big fat pieces of pork in them. And 
like I can't find a salad anywhere. Why is there no salad? You know, mm-hmm. not under not piece that cultural you know thing. It's just not a thing to eat there, really. You don't eat it there for yeah. very good reason. Right. But that was something that in my brain I felt I either needed or wanted or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, those comfort foods. Mm-hmm. And so I started doing a lot more cooking for myself. I was and and also a lot more exploring. And the one the one experience that I can remember distinctly was I was on I would basically ride my bike from our house, which was on the coast, all the way to the northern tip of the island and back, and that was 130 miles. Mm-hmm. And weather in Okinawa is like pretty brutal hot and humid all year. And they also don't, at that time, they didn't have sport foods. There's no like gels, there's no power bars. So I was either packing something that I had or finding something along the way. And on this particular day, my snack had fallen out of my pocket. So I'm, I got nothing now, mm. but I have some yen. So I stopped my bike on the you know, side of the road. And if you've been to Japan, you know that there's like a family mart or whatever all over the place, even in the most random spots. Mm-hmm. And I kind of walk through the doors of you know, the, the doors part in this like beautiful world of all the <laughs> of coolness and yes. <laughs> air conditioning kind of like, you know, kisses my brutalized skin. <laughs> and I pick up, you know, with my with my like eight yen or whatever it is, I get a couple of little onigiri rice balls that have maboshi plum in the middle and they're wrapped in mm-hmm. it's you know seasoned rice with sesame seeds and um this cool little package of like nori seaweed on the outside and i go sit down on the corner and you know the the stoop outside which of course they were like why don't you just sit inside and eat this thing like please mm-hmm. why are you sitting on the side it's dirty out there <laughs> and i eat this thing and it just lights me up like all of the things that were in this accidental snack that I had been considering to be like the second rate like if I have to eat this I guess I will and I can't believe this is what it is just tot- like it was like my world got painted in with color again hmm. and and I was pretty depleted at that point like in that particular moment but also emotionally like I was scared my person's away I'm I'm yeah. obliterating myself every, I'm training like 25 hour 28 hours a week hmm. because I don't have anything else to dump myself into and and that hit of salt and all those umami flavors just, I was on fire mm. and felt like I had really unlocked something. And from that point on, sort of would use these training rides to ride to new villages and check out new food. And almost every one I rode into, I would encounter some, you know, like little woman with, a, with like a woven basket. She just walked out of the ocean. She's harvesting seaweed or something. And she'd look at me in my Lycra and go like, First of all, where are you yeah. from and from why Mars. are you here and are you okay and yeah. do you need anything from me? And typically then it's like, oh, well, my husband just caught, you know, in our broken way of communicating, like my husband just caught this beautiful piece of fish and here is a shiso leaf and some lemon. Like, would you like a bite of this? Well, yes, I would. Like mm-hmm. these, you know, people that I met along the way and the food that they were willing to share or that I, you know, that they would offer to me for a small payment was how I survived and how I trained and how I thrived. Mm. And it was effectively, again, this like moment of bravery of going like, if I would just let go of my own conventions, there's a whole world of self-exploration for me to enjoy. There's a whole culture out there that I would be missing out on if I was trying to eat power bars from the military base all mm. the time. Mm. And, and it was a really important, like I was fueling my like life capital. I was really like becoming, a, like the experiences I was having in the world were rich because I was going out and enjoying these flavors and these foods and connecting with these people it made me a better athlete and the 
and the events I was entering in were more rewarding for me because I had all of that background experience. And it didn't really matter then how I did at the race because I'd had this incredible training experience where I got to like see the world. And that, that really was the hallmark of my experience as a professional athlete was that it was every bit about the adventure that I could have while I was like preparing for this, this thing or that thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I, I qualified as an amateur in China to go to Kona. I got whatever, second place in my first Ironman and I was hooked. I was like, cool, I am totally an endurance athlete. I'm gonna just chase this around. Nice. And I did for like nine years. Mm-hmm. Wow. In Ironman, but other things too. Pretty much any, any, anything I could find that was mm. gonna push my limit was what I was gonna do. Um, and yeah, all over the place. That, and so that's, that's basically how I arrived at this point of having a fusion between food and sport. And when we came back home from Japan, I was basically completely cast off this idea that I wanted to go to graduate school. I did not care about working in policy anymore. I was convinced that <laughs> I had been baking a lot while we were over there, basically fly, either flying ingredients in or navigating how to use Japanese ingredients to bake cookies and like muffin tops, which is what I was really, I was craving those things. I wanted to figure mm-hmm. out, I knew you could do it. Like I'd eaten cake there, mm-hmm. but didn't know the science behind how to make it really, really work. And so I decided I wanted to go to culinary school to understand the science of how to do this on my own. Okay. So it was it was that, like knowing that you could make really amazing food from whatever you had on hand, mm-hmm. raw ingredients, uh, mm-hmm. was what inspired me to be a chef. And I wouldn't have had that had I not been an athlete as well. Mm. So I so I came home, I went to, I went to Cordon Bleu and graduated um, with a degree in patisserie and baking mm-hmm. and uh, did very, very well in my program and got spit immediately into fine dining. And I was trying to be my best, right? Like I had this amazing invitation from this amazing restaurant in Los Angeles. They wanted me to come and work there. Cordon Bleu's in LA also? Well, the Cordon Bleu actually is in Paris, Uh, but they have coordinate schools all over the country now, or really all over the world now. And my final degree is from the school in Portland, which is where we ended up when we moved back from Japan. Okay, I see. But I was invited to work in Los Angeles. Okay. So, um, So I pick up and move down there and, and, become a pastry chef Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it's very different world than me training and racing. And I basically can't, I can't race or train as I was before working in a restaurant. My shifts were from 10 AM to 3 AM. Wow. And that's very, that's normal. That's not just me. It wasn't, it was really, really hard business. And we had an eight course dessert tasting menu. Mm. So not only were, was I prepping, you know, and, and crazy cool things, like this wasn't just cooking, this wasn't just baking or patisserie, this was gastronomy. Like mm. my tasks would be to make a meringue and set it with some compound that lives in our pantry that's letters and numbers. It doesn't, ha- it's not called gelatin, it's something else that's been specifically created to make this look, to make our food look like art. Uh-huh. And then I would spread it on, you know, a piece of acetate that's like exactly 0.1 millimeters thick and roll it up and put it into hydrator so I could later build towers of meringue and cream and chocolate that looked like art, not mm-hmm. just food. food. And it was incredible. Like we had a whole chocolate room that I would spend days in, like working with chocolate and making ice creams and mm. doing all, you know, understanding the science behind that and really being a person who now loves food and is fascinated with ingredients and, and beautiful food too. Um, it was super, super cool, but it was just, you know, destroying me and also destroying a little bit of how I felt about food in the world because the guests that we would have that would come and enjoy these meals were very long and very expensive, didn't actually care whether or not I poured any soul into the food. The meals were long and expensive, not the guests. Sometimes the guests were also long and expensive. (laughs) (laughs) 
Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, they didn't care. You know, we would get plates back to the kitchen that were full still. And to know that I had spent that amount of time, you know, they were coming to the restaurant because it was a very invoked thing to do. And the food mm. scene in LA has changed a lot now. Uh-huh. At, at that point in time, we were the place to go and to see and be seen. Now you can tell us the name of the restaurant, please. I was at Providence, okay. um, which is a fantastic restaurant. And mm. at that time, I believe was one of the only restaurants in the city that had two Michelin stars and still holds Michelin mm. stars. Mm-hmm. Um, the chef that I was working with, the pastry chef that I was working with is no longer there, but okay. um, Chef Simaristi is still there and he's still mm. receiving a lot of accolades and it's still an incredible place. And whenever I get a chance to go there, I still go and get the eight course desserts tasting menu nice. because it's it's really fun. But and it's the same kitchen and- It's the same kitchen, so you- it's the same, same soul. And it's it was a really, really good place but it was but it was hard for me because I was coming from a really raw spot where I was literally raw spot in the sense of like if I was on my bike and I was craving ramen I wanted I was going to eat ramen and I didn't really care how pretty the ramen was at that point in time but we were predominantly concerned because our guests were predominantly concerned with what our food looked like and 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 with dessert it is that way anyway right like Mm -hmm. as you know pastry is one extra level of like one extra level of that, um, that art, um, which is a piece that still speaks strongly to my personality, and and I, and I, I love pastry, and I loved working there, but I didn't love that. I realized it didn't it didn't matter in that moment whether mm-hmm. or not I had plucked the perfect cherries, or you know the guests weren't eating the food. They were just. The guests weren't eating our desserts all the way. They weren't savoring our desserts. So they you felt were, like you were making an aesthetic product, but it wasn't being appreciated for the love you were putting into the, the food and the t- flavor and the, yeah. is that fair to say? Yeah. I felt like there wasn't actually any value given to the, to the fact that there were human beings that were making it oh. or the, or the attention to detail that was going into it, you know? Um, and that was again, just, I had had these crazy experiences of connecting with the fishermen who had caught the fish mm-hmm. and I cared most about that and the people that were eating my food, I didn't they didn't seem to care as much about that. Okay. I wanted to be in a different, I wanted to be in a different place. And I also wanted to be outside. Mm-hmm. I needed to have fresh air and I had now reduced all of my food experiences to acetate and meringue mm. and windowless rooms of chocolate. And that, that wasn't my soul of cooking. Mm. Um, so <sighs> windowless rooms of chocolate. That sounds like a book chapter title, right? It will be someday. Someday <laughs> there, there will be a whole book about that. Windowless rooms of chocolate. It's, I mean, and, and that's really the life of a, the, you know, the life of a chef, yeah. conventional life of a chef, um, is that you are an, you are living in an indoor experience. Right. It's very isolating and, um, My for good reason. And I, we've been watching chef's table a lot on Netflix. Yeah. I mean, we don't watch a lot of TV or regular television, but we, we do eat dinner in front of that show sometimes. Mm-hmm. And it's quite illuminating to see those experiences. It's of beautiful. The yeah. It's so beautiful. So well produced and mm-hmm and just the richness of the stories. And yeah. I spent so much time in Toronto, I've never been able to eat at Canroca, but to see the Canroca episode uh, was like... It's, yeah, it's, I mean, I don't know how, I don't think, yeah, you can't watch that show and not fall in love with food in a, complete, in a whole new way, in my right? opinion. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. yeah, I mean, even even as a person who is deeply in love with food, then mm-hmm. I feel that way, but... Um, cool. Have they done an episode on Providence? They haven't. They, they will, haven't. I'm sure at some point, but I right? bet at some. I mean, I hope they do. Uh, Simaristi's yeah. been a chef for so long, and mm. the and the soul of the restaurant is, you know, is still so intact. And I hope that they do. Yeah. I, every every chef has a story like that, in my it, opinion. And it's striking how many of them are so similar, where they yeah. have this. They're all they all kind of have those ingredients, so to speak, of like I'm so driven. I love <laughs> food, I'm, but I have to find a new way to create. And then it becomes 
it's like the comic strip author where the pressure to create new stuff and create at such a high level with such regular intervals. Yes. Not unlike the world of podcasting, except <laughs> way, way accelerated. Not unlike the world of being an athlete. It's actually very, very much point. the same. That's it's a good the, point. It's, it's literally like chefs yeah. and athletes are very, very similar people, but, mm. but it's very difficult to fuse the worlds together because mm. one requires, you know, the, the environment, your work environment is very, very different. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Like you're either you're, you know, but you're as a chef, you're constantly in discomfort, pain, uncertainty. Yeah. Pushing yourself to find that next level of yourself. And that's very, that's yeah. very true Pushing for athletes. Your team. Yeah. 100 percent. Yeah. yeah. Uh, figuring out how, you know, like mm. taking care of yourself and taking care of others and mm -hmm. and all, so many new, so many similarities. Nuances so many that, si yeah. But just the rhythm, I think the underlying theme is the rhythm and pressure of the flow. It's like you're on a river and the river's always moving and you have yep. to kind of keep up. Yes. As an athlete, you're always feeling that pressure like, well, if I don't, if I miss this Wednesday workout, that's my clutch workout and I'm doing it every week for the next eight weeks, mm -hmm. that's my preparation for my race that is 11 mm -hmm. weeks away. Mm -hmm. One of those is a big percentage. And if I'm sick that morning or if I don't sleep well Tuesday night or if I don't eat well, then that whole, mm -hmm. it cascades and it's, mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. the same sensation in the world of the chef, right? Like you can mm -hmm. see the pressure that they that they so lucidly illustrate in this show about that drive to create and also to to make that product. And the consistent theme is that the press, when whenever a restaurant gets a Michelin star or oh. gets really good reviews, the press just crushes everybody, yeah. and then the pressure just gets notched up. It seems yeah. like yeah, similar to anytime you have one good result. It's like right. you prove positive for yourself, you know, and, and mm -hmm. you prove positive that you can do it. And then it's like, where did I get it from? Right. Where and did now, I find that thing from? It? How do I keep it? And yep. and the thing that's, you know, for, for me having existed mm -hmm. and still, you know, existing in both of those worlds, it, you can't until you kind of let go of that fear. Like you've got to just trust yeah. your flow and figure out what your flow is. And it, it's not the same formula mm -hmm. that it was yesterday. It's a mm -hmm. different formula today than it was yesterday. It will all, it, you know, it just keeps constantly well, changing and shifting. You have to evolve because you're evolving as a person, like you said, right. which goes back to your point about on this day, I ate, drank a glass of milk or had cow cheese and it was fine. And then three months later, yeah. I had a pizza with cheese on it and it was a complete yeah. mudslide the next morning. What happened? That's right. That's right. Or my stomach was terrible. And, and so you're changing as an athlete, you're evolving as a human. So your relationship to that food changes. Your relationship to the training load changes. I've had so many conversations with athletes where they're like, where we get to a point where things are struggling, they're in a struggle, a place where they're, they're searching for form and they're feeling that pressure of the event coming up. And a lot of times they'll say to me, well, two and a half years ago, we just did this. Yeah. Let's just duplicate it. We yeah. had the perfect run into this race. Yeah. Let's just take those same 12 weeks and, and I'll go, well, we can try that, but the it's chances of working yeah. are very, very slim because you're not the same human. No. This is not the same year. You haven't had the same load. You haven't had the same stresses. You haven't had the same life events. Mm -hmm. You've had two and a half more years of racing and training in your legs. It's not, that's, it, we, we t again, so it's like 30, 40, 50,000 feet, 100,000 feet out. What are we doing as humans? We continually apply this reductionist line of thought because that's how we've been taught to solve problems, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. How do I make, how do I lose weight? Start counting grams of carbs, fat, and protein. Mm -hmm. But we don't eat carbohydrates. No, we don't. And we also, don't if you're like looking at a bowl of rice, like, <laughs> 40, by the way, by the grams? way, the amount of carbohydrates in each individual grain of rice is different. 
Right. It's not that nature goes like, cool, that'll be two and two and two and two and two and two. You know, that's just not that way. It doesn't work that way. So the idea, so it's all, you know, not like not mm-hmm. to get too like uh, abstract with it, but it, who the fuck knows? Like, <laughs> totally. who, literally, you know, and, and, uh, and as a chef recognizing that, mm. you know, um, some of my favorite people to ride with, ride bikes with now are chefs because and those chefs that have basically started giving themselves the freedom and flexibility to get out and move their bodies through nature. Because in my opinion, and for me, you know, even though I left restaurants, I thought I had failed at being a chef and I've managed to find a way to do that and mm. be an athlete as well. Uh, the season fuels you. Like riding through, you know, I would go I'd go for these rides occasionally with a dear friend, Dave Barron, who has a couple of restaurants in Los Angeles. Um, we haven't gone for a ride together in a really long time, but my, I have very distinct memories of riding with him through the hills out there and him being able to point out all the different ingredients that he could forage and use and cook. Isn't that cool? That's also what you're yeah. riding through. Like, yeah. you know, it's so, and, and being able to be in touch with, you know, knowing that like, oh, by the way, the cherries are probably gonna be blue, you know, in and ready and ripe to pick soon because I can feel the way that the sun is hitting me and I know that that's the way they're going to hit the trees and I bet that like mm. you know the same way that you would like if you're a skier you sort of track snow conditions yeah. through the year you're like watching the way the snow falls and knowing how it compacts like that's what a chef in an in, interacting physically and viscerally with the with natural world can understand. Yeah. And by the way, your cherry pie is going to taste different this year yes. than it did last year because of the amount of sun and the amount of residual sugar that that creates in the cherries. Just like, like someone who runs a good vineyard understands totally. how the grapes are different yeah, seasons totally. year to year. Yeah. yeah. It's really, really yeah. nuanced. It's never, yeah. it's never the same thing twice. Mm. And, um, being okay with that and mm. embracing that whatever you're going to get this time is like the perfect thing is a pretty important part of. Yes. Functioning in a kitchen at that very high level, but also part of being a person in the world. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> I I feel like I could spend the rest of my life making up for lost time on refining my intuition and connection with nature in that sense. Yeah. Like how beautiful is it to walk through the world and be able to pick up on all the nuance of mm-hmm. how the sun's different. And when you feel fall come, like it came here just a few weeks ago and we were just commenting this morning when you came in, like, man, it's, it was cold this morning. It's cold this morning. And just to be in touch with that rhythm of nature. Yeah. I mean, that's not, that's a thing that I'm so feel that so many people are removed from. And that's part of ultimately that leads to dysfunction. It leads to disharmony because we are natural creatures. We are human beings yeah. who are in sync with nature. And we take those cues to help regulate our nervous system and our rhythm and our mm-hmm. flow throughout our day. Mm-hmm. And when we become detached from that and we live under LEDs and in a box, then mm-hmm. too much of that just, yeah. it disconnects you. It chops off the umbilical cord we have to the planet. Yeah, totally. Which, but it's really hard, right? You know, I mean, it's easy to have that disconnection happen. We've created that for ourselves. We've created all sorts of different ways and structures and and checklists that- it's just an outcome of modern life. Yeah, it's totally an outcome yeah. of modern life. But I, but I also think that it's really possible to, you know, and you know, at least in my work, like it's not, it's not possible for me to function outside all the time, cook outside all the time, be on my bike. But there are definitely ways that you can reconnect to that. And, and frankly, just knowing that it's important to connect to it and make sure that you do it every day in some way, shape or form is, is not the ultimate, but it's enough. 
to know that there's more than just like, cool, I sat at my computer all day today and I'm just going to pound away at this and then I'm going to like, you know. Eat microwave food and go to sleep. Yeah, yeah right. There, you know, just recognizing that there's another way to do it. Yeah. Is yeah. is a key, yeah. in my opinion. Agreed. And, I, and also to touch on a common theme, it's like the difference between, you know that that's maybe something, let's say that for the sake of argument, members of our audience have agree with this line of thinking and they agree that they want to be in on this. They want to connect with nature. The balance there, just like you said, with the food and the milk is not to walk through the world with fear or, or guilt about, well, today I didn't get to meditate. I didn't get to go on a hike. I didn't go outside and mm-hmm. throw a tennis ball for my dog. Yeah. I didn't get to go on a bike ride. And then you're laying down at night going, I screwed up. You know, you're feeling bad. Yeah. You're feeling guilty. You're feeling like your health's going to slip down the toilet. One day is one day. Like yeah. one ice cream cone is one ice cream cone. Yeah, totally. Like just enjoy the freaking ice cream cone. Yeah. And then tomorrow I'll say, okay, I'll try again. Yeah. Tomorrow I'll make an effort. Tomorrow I know that I've got 20 minutes. And instead of surfing Instagram, I'm going to go sit in the sun <laughs> and just close my eyes. Yeah, totally. And breathe. And breathe. It can be that simple. It doesn't have to be some mm-hmm. freaking aerobics routine in mm-hmm. the park with, you know, hand weights and no. whatever, 16 well, other We also are doers. You know, like, mm. I mean, one of the reasons why I really want to incorporate this word overachievers into the title of this book is that th- being an athlete and just being a high functioning person where you have a check, we all almost, almost everyone I know has a checklist in their brain of like the things that you want to do during the day, the things you're holding yourself accountable for, and they're all doing things. None of them are non-doing things. Mm. And we don't have any built in rest in our lives. And we're, by the way, sleeping really poorly as a society. Like that's a whole other rabbit hole of diving down into where, by the way, if you're looking at your nutrition and you're not looking at your sleep, you're missing missing half the equation. So, um, but there's also like, if you miss an entire week of doing your run because you had other things to do that you either felt more obligated to do or that you wanted to do more or that Mm. felt more important to you or that didn't fit, it's fine. Mm-hmm. It's totally fine. And whatever your outcome is, you know, we're not race. Re- most people are not racing right now. So if you miss a week of workouts, chances are you probably really needed the rest. And mm-hmm. the universe is basically telling us to take one big break right now. Slow down. In s- whatever way it is, like yeah. taking a break from all the things that you thought existed in that specific form, like taking the break and doing it is mm-hmm. okay. Like mm-hmm. it's okay to take a month. It's okay to, it's okay to work for a year in a restaurant and work in the dark and basically not train. By the way, you're going to pop out on the other side if you want it. And you're probably not going to miss that much. But you've learned so much from that year. You've, you've learned so much from that year. Right? That's part of your evolution. It's going to, mm-hmm. it, 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 it shapes who, you know, it shapes your prowess. It shapes your values now because now you're prioritized that outside time. Because yeah. you know that you, as like a man or woman can't know their yes until they define their no. 100%. Right? Yeah, 100%. You can't, mm-hmm. all those things really are like, I, <laughs> it's funny because I think, um, Somebody was asking me the other day about mistakes, and I was like, I sort of don't, I don't have them. I don't know what they would regrets, be. I don't mistakes. have any regrets because yeah. I generally feel like almost every single thing, like beauty and terror that I've ever thrown myself into or that's been thrown upon me, has positively shaped the mm. way that I can navigate the world. And mm. that includes all of the like pauses that felt, you know, the f- pauses or hardships that have felt like, yeah. you know, lame or whatever. Um, yeah. Yeah. You got to just. Do you got to trust there's something, there's something that's smarter than your list. <laughs> like what a horrible Agreed. realization that's like, I hold all the power to be, you know, mm. you got to, tr- whatever that looks like for you, you just have to trust that it's o- like, yeah. it's okay. <laughs> Agreed. I, I, yeah, I love the way you phrase that. That's 
really well said. Like you have to trust in the universe's plan is kind of a way to think about it, which yeah. is kind of a little bit hippy dippy and I'm fine with that. Yeah. I'd say also, I'm gonna push back and say, you're, you're not giving yourself quite enough credit, Lentine, because I think that you, look, I mean, every human faces hardship and challenge in their lives. It's how we respond to that challenge. Yeah. It's how we, Yeah. how do we embrace it or how do we run from it? How do we hide it? How do we bury it? Or how do yeah. we look at it straight in the face and say, wow, that was hard. I got my ass kicked there. Yeah. Or I made a terrible decision to yeah. do this <laughs> and that didn't work out well, but what do I take away from it? How do I grow? Yeah. How do I continue to expand and refine my dream and my path from it? Yeah. And every person can kind of, we all have moments probably of both. The trend, how are you trending? Yeah. That's the big picture. Are you trending towards the the latter, which is I'm growing and learning from these experiences. Yeah. Now I'm a better person. Or every time I screw up, I berate myself and I smash myself and I feel guilty and I carry this weight around. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. it's like one of my favorite expressions is mm -hmm. guilt is like a suitcase. Mm -hmm. You just put it down and walk away. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good one. Isn't it? <laughs> well, you just touched on something though that's making me think about you know, like if we're talking about athletes and navigating nutrition or navigating food or just navigating like how to be, a, you know, a great athlete in the world. The idea, if, let's say that you're you're a mountain biker and you're just going to ride the smoothest line down the mountain every time. You learn nothing. Avoiding all the rocks. You avoid all the rocks. You yeah. have no challenge. Mm. You mm -hmm. may be fast, right. but you basically suck because you can't do any of these. You can't face any obstacle. And so mm. the idea that, you you know, especially when we talk about nutrition, like, cool, just tell me the one answer of what the thing is I need to eat. Yes. Give me the simple. Well, give me the simple tell me answer. Tell me what to do. Well, mm. I would love to do that. Wouldn't mm. that be so nice? But the, but the truth is that you have to kind of like that it's a very broad avenue and you have to take little mm -hmm. detours to find like, oh, cool. Well, that definitely didn't work for me today. And I have now, you know, that lesson is going to guide me back to the broad range of the way that I want to conduct myself as an athlete in the world yeah. and the things that I'm going to put myself up to or the ways that I'm going to make yeah. my choices. And, and that's a far more rewarding training process mm -hmm. than following the straight and narrow path that leads you to a very empty outcome that may be very fast, right? But also is you know you're not challenging yourself. You're not challenging yourself, yeah. and and I and I think there's so it's interesting. I used to ask. We'd be like huddled behind the food trailer when I was at Scratch, and uh, I developed this product for them called the Cookie Mix, which is basically like at some point in time I met Alan. I was at a race. Uh, he gave me a rice cake and a, and a burrito, and we started talking. And he learned that I was a pastry chef, and was like, "I need someone mm -hmm. to make me a cookie." And I was like, "I can make you." Cookie. I can do this. <laughs> nice. I want to make you a cookie. So <laughs> the the cookie mix was our answer to packaged energy bars mm -hmm. that you bake yourself and that didn't have any of the preservatives added that basically are not food that your body's not going to recognize as food. Yep. Um, and there and by the way, if you look at a, a, at the ingredients in a cookie and the ingredients in almost every energy bar out there that contains grains, yeah, it's basically the same thing without that other stuff that your body doesn't recognize as food. So we, made, so we made these cookies and I w and when we were testing the recipe, I would make huge whole sheet pans filled with cookies in the trailer. And then basically the riders knew that after like lunch or dinner or whatever, well, really it was dinner, they would eat dinner with their teams. And then typically I would get text messages yeah. from them being like, where are the cookies? <laughs> where are you? <laughs> where are the And we would go back out to the trailer and I would open everything up and we would yeah. eat 
cookies. Like however many cookies they could stuff in their mouths was what they were eating. <laughs> uh, no carbohydrate diet, like take that. <laughs> I got to enjoy some of these cookies. Oh yeah. yeah. And, and I would ask them sort of like, you know, we'd be in some cool place. Typically, mo most of my poignant memories were from California. Mm -hmm. What did you guys see today? Like I was in the trailer all day. Like what did you see? Mm -hmm. And a couple of the riders would be able to be like, oh man, we rode along this coastline or whatever. But otherwise, most of them were like, most of them were focused only on someone else's butt. Someone else's butt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Makes perfect sense. Also, like your life depends on focusing on that butt. Yeah, because, it's true. But that's how you survive in a peloton. Yeah, that's right. But yeah. it was always fascinating. To, and typically, the people that were at the front were able to see more. <laughs> um, but or in a breakaway. Or in a breakaway. But yeah. also, there's you know, there's the gruppetto, like mm -hmm. where it starts mm -hmm. to not matter anymore. And were they focused on their stem? or their garment or whatever it was, or were they looking around? And it was really interesting to know mm -hmm. who felt the freedom on different days. Yeah. Some of them felt more for, more free to notice and some of them didn't, but- Some of them the world was a little- Some of the world, sometimes smaller. the world's a little small. And I know <laughs> I've had those experiences in my lifetime too, for sure. Yep. Um, writing a cookbook is awfully like, is like that, by the way. <laughs> but, you know, if you're gonna dedicate your life to, you know, if you're gonna call yourself an athlete, you definitely have this, um, moving your body through the world is super important to you. Mm. And if you don't end up reaching the goal that you're setting in the same shape or way that you imagine, like what's it amount to ultimately? Like, let's say that you want to be the best of the world, but you aren't. What are you, are you going to tell yourself that you failed because you weren't the best in the world? Or are you going right. to be like, cool, this was a massive success because I got to like go all these cool places or see these amazing things or mm. like I'm soaring down, you know, I don't know if you've ever, if, have you ever noticed there's a hawk that lives in Boulder Canyon if you're coming down Flagstaff early in the morning, he's probably soaring up there. Mm. The next time you are early, I'll, check I'll it out. To, he's up there. Him. E either yeah. you're fixated on the cars or you're going a little bit slower and you can see this hawk that's right. circling and majestic and gorgeous. Mm. Still I, watch out for the cars, please. Still watch out for the cars, definitely. <laughs> where, where, you know, yeah. definitely pay attention. But, but if you are your slowest time ever to the top of the mailboxes and you noticed the hawk, like, was that a shitty morning? Right. I hope not. No, not for me. Yeah. But that's easy for me to say because I raced for 35 years and spent yeah. 30 of them charging up Flagstaff as fast as I could. And <laughs> still had a third page Strava time on that climb at best. So, you know, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but it comes down to kind of like, what it, what's the goal, right? Like, is and is the goal only to be measured by someone else? Right. In sports, and ultimately, if, to a degree it is. Yeah. But if you choose to, it to be, right? Because you could totally place, mm. you could be 15th and be like, that was amazing. Oh, this goes exactly to my last interview with Julie Young. And she expressed that precise sentiment, which was we, our conversation got well into the philosophy of how she described she could race. And if she felt like she executed to the best of her ability, and dug within herself and learned new things about herself and performed at her best race, she could cross the line in 15th and be completely yeah. satisfied with the result. Yeah. And she even got to the point where she said that was almost a fault in her athletic, <laughs> her athletic career or adventures because she felt like she, she was implying that she wasn't quite attached to the actual finish line result <laughs> enough. And then I took it one step further and told her a great example about how I disastrously did that a few times in my racing career where I was like, yeah. I did this, this, and this, and the result doesn't matter. And then I crossed the line afterwards and spectators and managers were like, you're an idiot. <laughs> you should sprint. And I was like, oh, <laughs> it yeah. took me a while to figure that out. Anyway, but. I don't know, Julie, but we, we would be best mm. friends because that's exactly my experience. Like mm. ultimately I, I accidentally became a professional athlete. I didn't care that much about the outcome. I really mm. cared more about how deep I could dive into myself. And yeah. that was why I was net, like, I, I was really lucky to perform really well when I was doing it mm -hmm. and to get some really incredible invitations 
and to race in some amazing spots and to place well there. But mm. ultimately, the things I remember are not the like way that the race went down, but the stuff that happened around it or on the, you know, those other little details mm. are what I hang on to more than the way I performed on that day. Interesting. And, yeah. you know, I don't know. That's anyway. great. <laughs> so thank you for sharing all that. That's been um, very philosophical. Not quite a nutshell, but... Definitely not a nutshell. <laughs> uh, but I would love to unpack your philosophies and thoughts on some specifics. Okay. Um, if you wouldn't mind sharing, and you've you've kind of in a broad brush painted some of these, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on things like keto and carnivore and low fat, high fat, mm-hmm. you know, all these dietary phenomenon and discussions that are happening mm-hmm. right now. I mean, there's so many people out there with poignant philosophies and ideas about how people should eat mm-hmm. my I'll just preface it by saying my personal take is that and I think I'll agree with this that God is a novelty generator which means that what works for Lentine may not work for yeah. Susan Jessica or absolutely or Julie yeah um and might work perfectly well for Colby but terribly for Pete or whatever yep um but yeah yeah, happy to speak to that. I mean, and that's that's ultimately, you know, my philosophy is that it's really, really individual. Mm. <clears throat> and but also, there's other nuance, other pieces of that, which are that I'm really a firm believer that food should look like food and should come in its mm. like eat real food. And if you're navigating in a world where you know where you're basically like buying raw ingredients, like your spinach is in a spinach form and it's not in a box or can or can and you're in touch with the seasons you're eating things that are growing in the environment right now you know it will speak to your body and what your body needs in the right now we Mm -hmm. need different things in the winter than we need in the summertime Mm -hmm. we need different things in the spring than we need in the fall um if you're eating your foods in you know whole real packages that don't contain any plastic or man-made ingredients, right? Mm. And things like, you know, paying, we talk about whole grains a lot and there's a lot of stigma around grains right now. Carbohydrates are bad. Carbohydrates are so bad and they're the, <laughs> and they're the thing our bodies use most as fuel. Basically everything we consume is gonna be turned into carbohydrates. Wait, what, I can't just eat avocados and eggs? Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, that, I mean, um, yeah, the, I'm blushing because the no, the no carbohydrate thing is, mm. I, I really try to keep my, my posture in that conversation because it's just insane to me that um, if you want to perform well, you would try to cut out our primary carbo- our primary energy source. source. You yeah. know? And and that all that being said, my mother is um, celiac, has Hashimoto's actually. Mm. And so there and there are a broad variety of foods that she is unable to eat. Um, but that's a different category than what most people are talking about it's a different category than what most people are talking about there's definitely there are definitely bodies that are not able to process these things anymore Mm -hmm. and bodies that um and and individuals who are not yet to that point but are under the the preconceived notion that because Mm -hmm. some bodies can't consume that thing that they cannot or should or should not Mm -hmm. consume that thing um, my personal experience is that if you know where your grains are coming from and they are again like rice in rice form or wheat that's grown from a place that's local to you and you know, like we have an like here in Boulder we can buy locally grown and milled flowers and mm-hmm. you can either buy bread that's been made with that or you can bake it yourself. Mm-hmm. 
And this is, there are vitamins and minerals that we can't get from anywhere else that grow in these grains. Mm. Um, If your body is in a position where you're able to consume that thing, I think it's really, really important for you to eat it Mm. in some, in moderation. And of course, like the other piece of the philosophy is that everything in moderation, like ice cream in moderation, grains in moderation, protein in moderation, all, all of it. Yeah. There's no one thing that you can go like, cool, I'm just going to eat steak and kale for the rest of my life and be so set. But that'd be so simple. It would be very simple. Right. Um, it would also be very uncomfortable. Right. Yeah. What's the, why can't I do that? Why can't I just eat steak and kale and tea? Well, first of all, both of those things are very difficult for your body to digest. Why? Why? I know. It's crazy. Well, so, so without all of the other beautiful gut things that are provided to us with fermented foods and grains and mm-hmm. other vitamins and minerals we get from other ingredients, we don't actually have the enzymes in our stomachs to break down the intense protein in, that in, in beef or in, or the cellulose structure of raw kale. Right. Raw kale actually is really, really difficult for us to digest. The mm-hmm. idea that you'd eat only kale salads as a person who has in fact found out that that's not a good idea <laughs> the hard way, um, that's not great for our bodies. There, we have to treat foods, we have to understand what what plants you know we are using plants and animals and living things we're using in our ingredients Mm. and how to treat them before we just tackle them right yeah no i do not recommend the beef and kale diet the beef and kale diet (laughs) but i but actually but but speaking to one you know recent there have been a a lot of movies and books and things that have come out recently about veganism and not consuming meat yes um you read my mind was the next yeah and that's a really big deal especially for again for you know we've been hearing a lot about the power of plant-based diets for a long time Mm. and there is a lot of power in eating more plants 100 percent um but wait saladino carnivore yeah okay so so the thing about the reason that there's a lot of power in eating more plants is that we have a lot of problems Mm. in the way that we raise and produce and sell um meat and animal products in our country and a lot of it goes back to um, concepts of regenerative agriculture and the way that those farms are basically the places where many of our chickens and pigs and cows or whatever other animals you may be eating are being raised is separate from the plants and that's not the way that these domesticated these now domesticated animals were brought into the world or or you know corralled by humans to Mm -hmm. exist um Industrialized. That, industrialized, yeah. Yeah, industrialized meat production is not a healthy meat production. Right. And most of the ways that many people in our country are getting their animal protein sources are from these industrialized chains. Yeah. And that is not a good place to get those things. But there are other ways that you can find them. And there are more and more companies now that are adding virtue to the ways that we are getting eggs and those sorts of ingredients. Mm. It is totally possible to here in Boulder and in other places around the country to find a farm, have a share, or even go to the farm and purchase pork or beef or chicken or eggs or whatever you might like. It's a little harder to come by than going to the grocery store and buying it off of a styrofoam plate, but that's okay because eating more plants is actually really good for you. There is, in my personal opinion and um, in my life, I've not found any negative benefit from occasionally incorporating meat and animal ingredients into my diet so long as they've come from sources where I basically know the name or the place where that thing came from. Okay. That's a distinct difference between going to the grocery store and buying Buying, whatever's on sale. Yeah. And, um, and if I, and frankly, if I can't find that thing or if my farm's out of it, like 
I'll eat beans or I'll eat okay. some other plant-based protein. Okay. And my body's pretty happy on that. Um, and this sourcing of the ingredients is, mm. again, you know, in terms of like this larger philosophy, um, knowing that it's really personal, knowing that if ingredients are coming in their rawest package and knowing the source, like the actual mm. source of those ingredients are all really key to my personal okay. food philosophy. So, okay, I'd like to unpack a couple things and ask you for your comments on them, if you don't mind. Sure. One is the discussion around vegetarianism. And I think that just like a lot of discussions, we have to we have to dig deep and really have a good understanding of what what we're actually talking about. We have yeah. to unpack the nuance a bit. And for me, one of the most commonly heard arguments against eating meat is that industrialized meat is really unhealthy for you. Yeah. But people tend to generalize that or broaden that statement and say all meat is bad for you. Yeah. And I think there's some origins for that. One is that as we spoke about now, carbohydrates are bad right now. Yeah, carbohydrate bad. Yeah. In the 80s, red meat was bad. Yeah. Red meat gave you a heart attack. Yeah. We have been literally beaten to death with this message through different media and different articles. And, and low you can, fat also, like and all of those old trends still yeah. have they residue still, in our society. They do. Yeah. It takes so long because you could argue almost that we're brainwashed with some of these messages. But if you look at it, it's just like bell bottom jeans versus skinny jeans. <laughs> Everything comes in and out of fashion. Mm -hmm. And right now, um, pushing your saddle forward over the bottom bracket is a little bit in fashion. And the old school <laughs> used to be slime your saddle back. Yeah. Well, at the moment, carbs are the bad guy. But 15 years ago, red meat was the bad guy. Before that, it was fat was the bad guy. If yeah. you ate fat, you were fat. That was yeah. the perception. And of course, we know that there's much more nuance to that. If you're consuming refined vegetable oils all the time, in particular, some of the nastier ones, then there's probably some truth to that because you're eating foods that are inflammatory yeah. and your body can't process properly, yeah. especially canola oil. Yeah. So that there's some truth to that. But then if we're talking, so we have to have nuance. We have to have discernment and say, well, yeah. what type of fat are we speaking about? Are we yeah. talking about actual 100% authentic cold pressed virgin olive oil and avocados mm -hmm. and ghee mm -hmm. from grass fed cows, truly grass fed cows? Yeah. That is a completely different completely source different of fat than you know, refined sunflower oil or the fats you would find in a donut. They're Absolutely. both fats. Yeah. But we have to look with a much more discerning eye, which yeah. goes to your comment of, I'm sorry, I can't just tell you to eat steak and kale. Yeah. So, which which I'm smiling because the thing that the way that I think this is really easy to think about is that, you know, for is for the billions of people we have that live on the planet, each one is very is an individual organism. Mm. And for each and every single ingredient that you might choose to put in your body, there are billions more. And each of those are uniquely, distinctly different with their own energetic value and their own and their own like life force, right? Mm -hmm. You cannot say that an avocado and a coconut and butter the, there is no similarity between those things. Even if the macronutrients are the same Even between three hypothetical foods, right? we believe that the macronutrients right. in our, when we've taken those ingredients into a lab and attempted to reduce them to yes. only their, when we've just, de when we've deconstructed them mm -hmm. into their parts, mm -hmm. we are not looking at the sum of, of their course, parts. Of course. And so, so if that, to me, that seems like a very um, easy to grasp example Intuitive. of like, like, cool, when you walk into the supermarket, if you think about all the billions of things that are actually in the supermarket, not just the things that are on the shelves and recognizing that there's a lot of choice, which is very overwhelming, right? Mm -hmm. Thinking about how much choice you have when you're just trying to cook dinner is mm -hmm. really overwhelming. But yeah, you can't, there's no way for you to, there's no way for you to reduce it to macronutrients. You cannot right. say that this, this is, or not macronutrients, 
you can't navigate nutrition without nuance. Right. Agreed. So we have to have a deeper level of understanding. So thinking about the vegetarian argument, it's like some vegetarians will say, I don't eat meat because meat is bad. Well, we could further discern that to say, well, what they mean, possibly what they mean, and perhaps with some more detail, they might be saying industrialized meat is bad. Well, I am far, far from a vegetarian myself. Yeah. But I agree with that sentiment 100%. Me too. When I get on an airplane and they want to serve me microwave chicken, I'll say, no, thank you. I'll choose to not eat it. Also I can meat. do without food, right? Yeah. So I can find something else. I, there's something, something else, else gorgeous for me to eat out there. Right? Mm -hmm. Or I'll bring it or I just won't eat on yeah. that. And I'll just wait until I can find something better. So that's my personal choice. That's how I navigate that minefield. But I think it's it. what I'm saying is from a vegetarian argument perspective, if you're equating all meat as the same, mm -hmm. I would invite you to dig deeper. Mm -hmm. The second argument I think that's useful to really consider in vegetarianism is the distinction between creatures that are air quotes living and those that are air quotes not. Yes. And I hear this one all the time and it's really frustrating. So I just got to vent for a second. People actually tell me that they don't want to eat animals because they respect the animal they respect the soul. Well, yeah, if you're talking about industrialized cattle or chickens and how they're treated, mm -hmm. well, we're agreed on that because I don't want to eat an industrial chicken, not only because it's not healthy for me, it's not healthy for the planet, and it's not healthy for the chicken. Mm -hmm. I don't want to eat a miserable chicken who's no. lived in a, in a warehouse full of 50,000 other hens and been pecking each other's eyes out and living in their own feces for years and then is just mined. You are what you eat. and You, you are what you, what you ate, ate. So, right. So we agree on that, but when we're talking about a locally raised chicken that's happy and running around in the field and eating worms and bugs like chickens should, mm -hmm. then we're talking about a completely different creature. Mm -hmm. And if you think that plants aren't alive, you're not thinking clearly about the scenario, mm -hmm. the situation. Mm -hmm. I, there, I think there are vegetarians out there whom I've had discussions with and I've read about their, their line in the sand and what they're saying is, you don't want to kill a living creature. And the fact that yeah. you think a plant isn't alive or doesn't have a soul. Yeah. Like well, also Steiner like, said all living, any, any creature with an inside and an outside has a soul. Yeah. Any object within an inside and an outside has a soul actually yeah. goes that far. Steiner was a pretty smart guy. Yeah. Well, also that the idea that it ends in your body, right? Is basically what you're speaking to. The idea that you would consume a chicken or spinach mm -hmm. or whatever it is, edible flowers, whatever you might be eating, and that yeah. that ends when you consume it. And then that's the end of the chain, is that right? The end of the chain is the right. biggest, is the other biggest yeah. problem, right? Yes. Because it's so interesting because when, when you, if you go to any other country, even mm -hmm. if you talk to other athletes about what, like, you know, what's your favorite food, what have you, mm -hmm. um, most other places, like take France as an example, Oh, like the raspberries this year, or mm. I love to eat this thing, or my or my mother makes this one recipe, my grandmother makes this one recipe, and that's most of the way that that culture would identify with food. And similar, mm -hmm. if you're in Japan or you're in, you know, like talking to Alan Lim about about recipes and and ingredients and food, yep. he thinks immediately of all these amazing recipes that his mother made for him when he was, you know, training as a young athlete. Most Americans, specifically Americans, when we mm. talk about food, we will categorize ourselves as. Oh, I'm a vegan. Oh, I'm right. a vegetarian. Oh, I, I have, I have these quarantined these, myself yeah. in this square where these things are mm. in and those things are out, mm. and that completely separates again all of our the fact that we exist as organisms in concert with the mm. entire planet. Like, mm. it's a really that's a really big disconnect. So you it's know? exclusive instead of inclusive. It's 100% exclusive. And so, so actually, I'm thinking about um, your book title and using the word inclusive. 
Yeah, man, yeah. <laughs> well, actually, I'm actually thinking about um, about a, case, a specific circumstance. And again, to go back to Alan, mm-hmm. um, you know, he wrote this book called The Feed Zone Table, which yeah. is all about commensality and the importance of the importance of sharing meals and feeling joy with respect to what you're eating and how that's actually an ingredient. And he spent a lot of time. I was working at Scratch when he was writing yeah. this book. Food is a part of community. One hundred percent. Right. And, but and it and it's and there's just so much more that we reap from it besides just the you know the nutrients mm. or the tangible nutrients we've been able to measure in a lab. Mm-hmm. And the example he gives is when he he was working with um, kind of a pilot program at the Olympic Training Center. And they had this group of 16 to 19 year old athletes that had been kind of like invited from all over the country, phenoms, mm-hmm. and they were, and um, hopefully I get all the details of this right, but they basically were going to provide them with a really unique training scenario that was highly focused. They were separating them from their families and their communities and, you know, kind of putting them in like a, like concrete blocks. Mm-hmm. Every day was the same. The nutrition was super dialed. Every one of them arrived with all this fervor and excitement for like, oh, I've just been selected like on fire with pride. Yeah. And in this book, in the introduction to this, to to Feeds on Table, Alan talks about how over the weeks that followed, he watched all, you know, the the newspaper clippings that had talked about how proud they were and how the communities that were celebrating their achievements mm. were torn from the walls. And each of these athletes now became just one of an army. Mm. There was no longer anything unique or prideful about their experience. They were just surviving monkeys they were monkeys they were soldiers they had you know by separating them in this way and by putting them in a super focused and super dialed environment they had taken away their families they'd taken away their community they'd taken away all the little joyful pieces about their training days that had made them great athletes and they started to get sick and so you know again the idea that we can put ourselves in a box and follow a strict guideline that doesn't have nuance and doesn't have the emotional pieces or the really connective life force pieces of our human experiences. Pretty narrow, and yeah. that's not to say that it won't work. You might be, you might become a world champion that way. Right. But I don't think so. Mm. It'd be less likely. It it's less likely. Yeah. It's less likely than to embrace the fact that there's a lot of, you know, that there are, we have a lot of choice and we have a lot of, you know. Isn't that interesting though? I mean, you look at every model of I look at the military, look at the model of how you're going to train people to be single-minded and myopic and focused. Mm-hmm. That's inevitably our model on how to do that, how to take oh, a population yeah. and refine them and hammer them into, into, it doesn't matter if you're Charlie Walsh building the Aussie program or if you're a sergeant building you know, troops into what molding them. It's like you yeah. beat them down, you make them the same, you take away their identity. Yeah. And you, that's how you forge them into a fighting unit. Yeah you know, whether it's literal or, or yeah. metaphorical. What's crazy, that, so one of the things I did when we were in Japan, this is somewhat of a side note, but I'm thinking about it as we're talking. Um, I wasn't able to work, but I was able, but I started practicing yoga. Mm-hmm. And I was practicing yoga in our little tatami room, like basically an hour and a half every day. And eventually my teacher, who was an Australian surfer, invited me to start teaching, teaching with her and eventually to take on her classes. And so I like went through teacher training and now I'm teaching both on base and off base. So most of the Japanese I speak or still remember is how to tell, like, you know, like open your heart, raise your arms above your head, like open your hips. Like I know how to say that sort of stuff, but colloquialisms are totally lost on me. Um, At any rate, so... I can tell you to open your heart, but I don't know how to get to the bathroom. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Open my heart into the bathroom, yeah. Um, 
And But I worked a lot with military members and their families on base. Mm. And I can tell you that the that as impressive as, you know, and oftentimes I would, I would um, teach classes to my husband's unit when they would come home from deployment. Mm. And to put, you know, a lot of um, the benefit of having a yoga teacher is that they can actually do like physical manipulations and help you to get into a posture. And putting your hands on one of, these guys' body, putting my hands on one of these guys' bodies when they've just come home from a scenario where they are constantly in stress and they're never letting go and there's no joy and there's no, you know, kind of just fuel for their emotional need. Yeah. They're very rigid people. They're All of them had the exact same physical patterns and they were able to do their daily tasks expertly. But and the food they were eating, they're serving. The food they were eating just... and serving was like pretty crazy. Although, yeah. frankly, when they would come home from places where they had local cooks cooking for them, it was tr- it was totally different than times when they were just in the field eating like MREs, right? Yep. Because there was some s- amount of soul that was being okay. cooked into it, right? So it really depended on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the but just that like being having to having to have your nose to the grindstone and functioning in a dialed way all the time where there's a lot of fear involved and there's a lot of pressure and in this case like ultimate pressure to just basically survive yeah bodies are not happy in that state bodies Mm -hmm. are not happy that is not a good place to Mm -hmm. function in and Mm -hmm. you your body is an amazing thing and it will learn it will learn how to do what you were asking of it and your brain will make those commands and you'll do it but it is not a good way of moving through the world longevity and long-term health Yeah. yeah agreed the i mean that's what's cool about elite athletics you many times you ask a world level athlete how they do what they do and they can't explain it because no. their body has solved the equation through years of just trying and trying and trying mm-hmm. and that's one of my most important rules whenever i talk about bike fitting or you could apply the same logic to to eating mm-hmm. you know when an athlete eats at the world tour level they eat what they can yeah it doesn't mean it's ideal and yeah. it doesn't mean that it's what you should eat at all sometimes it's actually far from ideal but their bodies are surviving on what they can and they're they're adapting to that mm-hmm. load it's the same thing mm-hmm. with bike fit mm-hmm. just because someone wins a stage at the tour de france doesn't mean that their mm-hmm. saddle's in the perfect place so they've got the ideal technique mm-hmm. it's just it's in spite of not because of mm-hmm. well i'm shaking my head because um we also are masters at listening to the stories we want to hear. Oh, of course. Which is that I'm going to do this thing. I believe that gluten and carbohydrates and meat and all the and all the fat are bad for me. And mm-hmm. your body will be able to perform at a pretty high level for a really long time. To and a point. To a point, and yeah. it will. And strangely, if you're fixated on the outcome only, you will maybe be pleased with the out- outcome, or maybe you'll be just missing your mark. But there's a lot of other little things like. Oh, I'm not sleeping well. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm anxious all the time. Oh, I've had diarrhea. Oh, I've for had six diarrhea months. for six months or for years, and yeah. that's my normal. You know, all these other subtle cues that we we, by the way, don't understand our bodies well enough as general human beings to yeah. be like, oh, you know, there are so many little clues that you may be receiving about how specifically your nutrition is not serving you, mm. and then you're like, I can't believe it. Like, how did I? How did this happen? How is it that I have? 
an autoimmune disease where, right. well, by the way, it's because your body hasn't had the nutrients that it's been needing to do this high level thing and live your regular life. It's been telling for you a really for years. long time. It's been tell it's been doing its best. But you put yourself in that military box of success, that yeah. myopic model to yeah. and you're ignoring all symptoms, yeah. all signs. Yeah. All Which communication. is almost where the it, you know, we were talking before about challenge and kind of mixing up your path, right? Mm. If for no other reason being brave basically enough to incorporate a whole bunch of different types of food so that you figure it out right. not just following that really strict guideline is one way of proving positive for yourself right because if you sleep a lot better because you had a bowl of pasta the night before yeah and your body feel, and you wake up and you're like cool i feel actually ready to go instead nourished. of like you know like shallow behind your eyes and that kind of like like mm -hmm. uh, you know the like you know the i can say this to you because i know that you know what i'm talking about when you haven't had enough sleep enough salt or enough fat in your diet. Mm. You know that feeling? Just hollow. You feel really hollow. Yeah. And and yeah. I know many athletes that are basically think that that's the like the way they should, the way yeah. they should feel all the time. <laughs> and let me tell oh. you that you perform a whole lot better when you don't feel like that. And it's funny, right? Like when you when you play around with different types of foods, you yeah. learn all those really fascinating mm. subtle things about your body and how it performs. Feeling like you're topped up is a really good feeling. I but unless you know yeah. what it's like to overtop and undertop, correct, you're never going to find that balance. Until so. you know your yes, you can't define your no. It's like landing a small aircraft is how I describe it. <laughs> yeah, you know, just enough speed, just enough altitude. Yeah, like if you show up to the start of a criterium with too much food in your belly, mm -hmm. you're just going to be pinned the whole race. Totally. You're never going to have that fluid, explosive, light feeling on the pedal. You're going to miss that plyometric, snappy ability to dig very deep, very quickly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. On the other hand, if you eat not enough or too far away from the start line, you come and the race starts and you're just, you're, you're good. And then the bottom starts to fall out and you're too in the clouds. And then, then there's a period of about 20 minutes where you've got some warning signs, but if you're really preoccupied with the race or you're not tuned in, you'll just miss them. Yep. And then the bottom falls out and your blood sugar crashes, crashes. and you are smoked yeah. and you're pinned yeah so it's it's a very narrow window and it requires a lot of refinement and yeah. there's no this goes back to my, one of my earlier podcasts on reliance on formulas formulas can be a great starting point for someone who's learning a sport just to get an idea but the ultimate goal is to throw away the formula and refine the intuition mm -hmm. refine the ability to look in and, mm -hmm. and just feel it go mm -hmm. man i woke up this morning and the first thing i felt what did you feel i mm -hmm. felt a hunger pang that tells me Okay, I might need to add. I might need to add one more egg this morning, yeah. or a little more olive oil, yeah. or maybe another little bit of rice. Whatever your instinct is, mm -hmm. and to feel that and that internal navigation, that intuition, that intern internal meter, is that's the life practice of the athlete mm -hmm. learning to look inwards mm -hmm. instead of being formula focused, macronutrient focused. It's mm -hmm. learning to. Mm -hmm. to use those numbers to refine what's happening mm -hmm. inwards. And to give yourself a lot more leeway. Like I'm actually thinking of to add another few layers onto what you just said about mm -hmm. finding that balance and finding your like fluidity in it. Um, it's like late fall, right? Like tomatoes are in season. Pears. Right now, tomatoes, pears are coming in. But tomatoes are like at their at, like at their most acidic peak. They're super, super ripe right now. Mm. And both my partner Pete and I have a difficult time consuming acidic foods like my constitution runs pretty hot like i have a lot of i have my metabolism runs really high i have a lot of heat in my body mm. he is similar when you add an acidic food to that you oh. amp up your heat right yeah. so um we have tons of tomatoes in our house because of course i go to the farm and pick like three like 30 pounds of tomatoes and mm -hmm. so 
it was a really hot day. We both had been running around really busy, like really like asking a lot of our bodies and our brains on this particular day. We'd gone for a long ride in the morning, was again warm. And then we ate tomato soup that yeah. night. Yeah. And we woke up the next morning, both of us feeling a little bit, you know, each of us with our own symptoms or like ways of being, but both of us had pushed ourselves over the edge and we should not have had tomatoes. Right. Because if we had picked a food that was more soothing and had more soothing qualities than this super high amped acidic thing, we would have probably been fine or just mm. balanced those things out. But there are, but you know, to add in the factors of like, when you're creating this cocktail of how you're gonna navigate your nutrition strategy, recognizing that there are lots and lots of ingredients, not just the basic, yeah. like what's my, what's my training load? Yeah. How did I perform? How many cages do I need How to many, consume? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot more, more to think about, and yeah. that and that's where giving yourself a little bit of flexibility and like, like oh, okay, I say. Yes. yeah, right. Like okay, I feel tired today. Like you can't beat yourself up about that. There's right. a lot going on in that cocktail. <laughs> so that's so interesting. You bring that up, thinking about nutrition from an Ayurvedic perspective. Yeah. Right. They view the the stomach as a cauldron, and how hot is that cauldron? And then what is your temperament? Are you pitta, kapha? What's the weather in your body? What's the basically. weather in your body? What's the weather outside? And yeah. right now in Colorado, we've got these extremes going where there are days where it's hitting, it's 75, 85, the sun could be quite intense, but then at night now it's already quite cool. Yeah. We've already had one snowstorm that came through and just about killed all our plants. And and so the weather's very up and down. There's um, also a lot of fires burning in our area. Fires, we've got all the yeah. smoke in the air. So how does that influence you? And I've noticed the same thing. Like if I eat food that's too fiery and then I'm going all day and I'm building that, that it adds to my digestive fire, I'll wake up with the sweats at night yeah. or I'll, I'll just have a restless night of sleep. It's totally. almost, it's not quite the same as if I drank too much red wine or something, mm -hmm. but wine also will heat up my digestive fire and my liver wakes me up at three in the morning. Boom. Yeah. Hey, what's up? You thought yeah. you were going to sleep. And that's not a natural sleep pattern, right. by the way. Like no. those are all symptoms that your sleep is disrupted. Something in your body is upset. Yeah. That's not mm -hmm. just like, oh yeah, I'm just that person that wakes up at three o'clock in the morning. Like, no, no, you don't. Something's out of balance. <laughs> Something is out of balance. And if you're doing that chronically, like something's got it, something's got to change. But yeah. yeah. So I, um, I'm actually in the middle of an Ayurvedic program studying, oh, great. really diving deeply into this because it's the foundations of that traditional medicinal practice mm -hmm. really have started to govern a lot of the ways that I build menus and build recipes. And mm. um, one of the principles that we talk about in the book is how flavor has function, not just for enjoyment, but you can navigate the world of food based on how you choose flavors because each flavor has an energetic benefit. So mm -hmm. by the way, one of the great ways of cooling down your system when you are too fiery or you've had a stressful day where your training was hard mm -hmm. and you're just generally upset is eating rice and lentils. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, like a, a pred predominantly carbohydrate heavy meal will stamp out your fire immediately. But carbs and are bad. I know. Well. <laughs> For the, yeah, yeah. As, as I said that to Lydia on her pot and her response was so beautiful. She just said, I don't care. <laughs> yeah, carbs are bad. Yeah, carbs I just I just laugh because it's like, okay. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, no, carbs are, it, for, the, for, for mm -hmm. bodies in motion, like they're so, you know, the reason that carbohydrates are good is that they're really easy to digest, especially if you have treated them properly, which mm -hmm. typically means for things like rice and whole grains, soaking them ahead soaking, of time. Soaking, fermenting. Yeah, yeah. soaking in, like they're, to like dive quickly deep into that, mm -hmm. the, basically grains are seeds that want to plant their nutrients and create new life forms. So if we just eat them straight from the ground, 
right. there's this natural toxin called phytic acid that when we yes. ingest it, creates, it's an anti-nutrient. It mm -hmm. actually prevents our stomach, our bodies from being able to absorb the nutrients in our food. But we're such clever humans, we can. Well, we're such clever humans that literally this, <laughs> we're such clever human beings that, <laughs> and beans are the same. So beans yes. and beans and legumes and nuts and grains, all are seeds that coat themselves in these natural toxins. And they, and the response is that basically they, they give us gas, right? Or they yep. give us indigestion. And so we if you as, ate a lot of them, they would make you feel pretty crappy. Yep. Without, or over the course of years, you yes. being like, cool, I'm going to eat whole grains. And I'm going to eat this. I'm going to eat brown rice only all the time yeah. or whatever it is. And you have this digestive distress, but you don't recognize it. What you're doing is literally training your body to not absorb any nutrients. At some point in time, you're going to have a negative impact from that. Yes. Or if you go to a Mexican restaurant in wherever it is, or and not even a Mexican restaurant, but some place where they're cooking beans for you and you leave and you have a ton of digestive distress, that is a sign that something has not been prepared properly for you. And it's not mm -hmm. the bean's fault, as it turns out. Right. The bean is doing its job. It is it is our responsibility to navigate the world of food yeah. more smartly. So that goes right into, into the carnivore diet and Paul Saladino's discussion, which is that he, okay, he looks at it this way from a survivalist perspective. If you want to eat an animal, animals have teeth and claws and hooves. So they can either yeah. fight us or bite us or run away from us. Yeah. That's their defense mechanism. Yeah. Our, jo our job is to run them down and spear them anyway or shoo the mastodon into the canyon and eat it or however we're going we're gonna to end up eating the animal. Plants don't have feet um, <laughs> or teeth unless you're talking about a Venus flytrap. So yeah. how do they defend themselves? They do it through With these chemicals. Acid, yeah. Yeah. So it's easy. So it's easy actually to... Or lectins, right? Yeah, or lectins, yeah, mm -hmm. which are predominantly in um, like cucumbers, tomatoes. One of the yeah. reasons, one of the ways we're able, I'm able to eat tomatoes is if I seed them first and then cook them. Right. Then I, my body is very content eating tomatoes, but unless I don't yeah. do that, it's hard. Um, one of the ways to uh, coax these ingredients into being consumed is to soak them in water with a bit of salt mm -hmm. overnight. You basically replicate a sprouting scenario. The salt replicates minerals in our soil that would convince the grain to unlock its intelligence and shed th this phytic acid, this micro, this uh, toxin, so that it can share its nutrients with the ground or right. with your body. Right. And it's a very simple thing to do. And it takes almost no time, but it does take forethought. And it will unlock that world of ingredients for most people and would cause and would, in my personal and perhaps small opinion, resolve a lot of the issues that we have around consuming grains as a society. Mm. If we would just yeah. treat the ingredients like living, like living. the living ingredients that they, that, that are, they are, right? You yes. know, assuming that you are going to go buy processed flour or like bread that's in a bag from mm. who knows where. And from that's bad factory. for you. Yeah. You're right. Right. That's totally bad for you. Right, right, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So... Well, Paul, you know, and this goes into Stephen Gundry's book, The Plant Paradox. He talks about yeah. Stephen's not as extreme as Paul is. Stephen is more about he divides the line on lectins and phytic acid and a few other plants, but he sort of separates them out. And his philosophy is that we should live like Italian gorillas, he phrases yeah. it. So he <laughs> yeah. says that basically you're entitled to eat as many leafy greens as you can tolerate, although he does point out that kale is not one of the best ones, but more like spinach. In and season. In season. In season, yeah. And with tons of olive oil, he basically says they're a vehicle for olive oil. And he talks <laughs> about that paradigm. And, and then he's a fan of healthy meats and nose to tail. Uh, Saladino cites a lot of science that says that even spinach has chemicals in it that are arguably not good for us. Things like that we right now are viewed as air quotes superfoods, things like turmeric and curcumin. He yeah. talks about how the compounds in those are actually quite toxic to the body. And he's 
very his diet is extreme although he's also he's really well educated he is a medical doctor and he digs into the science hard i love his work i also think he is a textbook example of confirmation bias i think he's <laughs> on a mission to prove that we should just eat meat and that's what he does he does recommend and has a lot of support for his argument that we should just eat nose to tail yeah so one of his discussions is around the fact that if you look at how tribes hunt or hunted what they would do is take down an animal the first thing the people ate the organs the brain the eyes the most nutrient-dense food yeah. we know of is liver to yeah. my understanding yeah period period so it's like hello so that's what the the hunters ate the muscle meat was given to the dogs what do we go what do we find when we go to a supermarket now muscle meat, muscle meat. it's all muscle meat yeah. you have to ask for liver or or organ meat at, with the deli yeah and when you get it usually they assume it's for your dogs yeah. we've reversed that paradigm yeah so saladino's entire argument is hinges on the fact that when we do eat meat it has to be nose to tail we have to get a lot of broads we have to get a lot of collagen mm -hmm. and that's what balances out gives us our gives us our micronutrients to help handle that protein load mm -hmm. he has all kinds of nuance on how you know people what about acid alkaline balance and you know what about the nutrients we get from plants and he argues that you can get that from nose to tail it's quite interesting and i'm not saying i'm fully on board with it um but i do follow his discussion pretty intensely mm -hmm. i've played with it a little bit myself mm -hmm. man i can't imagine getting up and only eating eggs and liver and then salmon and then liver and steak yeah. like with no to me it just feels and but maybe it's because i'm not used to it diet is an intensely emotional experience it's which emotional. goes back to what you were saying about when Alan Lim describes his favorite food, it's always based around family. It's an experience. It's an experience. It's yeah. a, it's it's around emotion. community. Yeah. Emotion of because of course we're we are getting life force from our meals. We are getting we are rejuvenating our bodies and and spirits and souls from the food we eat. Mm -hmm. So that's it's when you break it down to carbohydrates, that's when you end up in the world of gels and bars. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yeah. yeah, I guess I'm coming full circle, but... No, I, that, I'm thinking about three things in your commentary about Saladino. And the first is that, um, you know, if you look at hunter-gatherer tribes, right? That it, but long before our time, they lived in a very different world. Mm. They had different spiritual practices. They had different connections with nature. They're, you know, like, if I close my eyes and imagine what life might be like for them, they're literally spending ent their entire day... Um, hunting, tracking, foraging, it, foraging yeah. and they are in the wild with basically bare feet connected yeah. to the earth doing this thing. The animals that they are hunting and also uh, celebrating through ritual have been grazing on wild lands where the nutrients in the soil is far different than far the more nutrients nutrient -dense soil than yes. are as than is prevalent for us and since today. you ate what you are what you ate ate yep if you're eating those animals you're getting yes. much higher nutrient that's yes. an excellent point and the longevity of those tribes i don't exactly know what it is but it's but we're not living to be 150 most often in in the stages of early man they were probably living to be 35 or yeah. or something they also had one task for the day which was to hunt and gather their food it yeah. was not to drop off their kids drop at off soccer. their kids at school <laughs> run like when when you look at your task list for the day the amount of input that we are have infused into our schedules is massively different than Agreed. it is than it was Agreed. at that point in time yeah. and the amount of connectivity that we had to community and to the planet was totally different and that's not quantifiable but that mm. but we were a different 
organism at that point in time. And so I, th- and I think that's worthwhile to know. Very right? well said. Um, so other, different organism means different demands. Different demands. Right? Yeah. Different, different society means mm-hmm. different demands. The way that you interact with society, that's mm-hmm. also different demands. Yeah. Um, to the point of suggesting that specific types of food have um, nutrients or elements that are not necessarily healthy for our bodies. I think one thing that's difficult about looking at it that way is that you're never going to eat only one thing. And the way that food, for example, the benef- the health benefits of turmeric are not able, you're not able to absorb them unless you combine them with another spice. Because foods are Black always pepper. found in whole foods form in nature. are found in whole yeah. form in nature and yeah. in concert with other things because you're eating seasonally and you're eating, like, it's not that you're able to go to the grocery store and buy ground turmeric when you are foraging. You can get the root for a period of time and you ferment it or the you dry it. The other day I was walking through the forest and I found a vitamin A tablet. Yeah, yeah, right? You gotta, you, but you gotta know when that's in season, right? Because it's really tricky. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's just not the way that f- food exists for us right now in a totally different way than any of these quote unquote prehistoric patterns that we're trying to track. Mm-hmm. And we cannot ignore the fact that organisms need to be, need to be, wor- that they work in concert. Our foods work in concert. Synergistic. A, exactly. Yes. The, by the way, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich is a perfect food when you combine or, or a nut butter and jelly sandwich, let me say, because I have maybe some things about peanuts. Me too. Um, but a nut butter and jelly or nut butter and honey sandwich mm-hmm. on bread mm-hmm. is a complete food because of the way that the, uh, protein, the, the amino acid profile in your nut butter interacts with the nutrients that are in your gra- whole grain sandwich. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you've got all of the like, your sourdough, slow, totally your fermented, fermented starter. Bread. Yep. Yeah, right. And then, you know, if you add in like local honey in there, you also mm-hmm. have all these just like, like local nuance, right. That helps yes. to bolster immunity. Yes. And so you could go like, cool. So if you put two peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, that might be in your kid's lunchbox or in your or in Lentine's lunchbox mm-hmm. side by side. And one is this, you know, sourdough fermented whole grain bread that's got traceable grains, nut butter that was soaked. Traceable organic local grains. Yep. Yep. Soaked or sp- whatever yep. it is, yep. you know, like I've spread it in my kitchen. I've ground it into whole yeah. nut butter myself and Versus I used honey Wonder that I got bread. from down the street. Or you've got a Wonder Bread sandwich Skippy. with Concord grape jelly and Skippy. <sighs> These are two totally different things. Yes. 100%. Yes. And the pack- and the packages, in air quotes, that they're coming in is mm-hmm. very, very different. So, so you know, so to speak to the spinach, my, spinach has things that are bad for us. Mm-hmm. Well, there's other things that are going to counteract that that are good for us. And if so you eat the spinach if in you context. eat the variety and yeah. eat the spinach in context mm-hmm. and you don't eat spinach, that by the way isn't actually in season in the springtime like eating tender storage. vegetables that are just coming up in the spring and not eating kale in the spring because kale by the way isn't in season till later in the year mm-hmm. recognizing though that's a really important t- our bodies are going to have the thing the tools we need to process seasonal vegetables when it's ready for that right. to happen if we're still in touch mm. with nature yeah um and the yeah. other piece about the conversation about carnivorism is that you know, our hunter-gatherer ancestors were navigating wild lands where animals lived wildly, and we are no longer doing that. And to pull um, livestock out of a regenerative situation where liter- where if we're not eating any other plants, we don't have any reason to have farms. But if you go to some of the most productive and healthy farms here in Boulder Valley or anywhere, you have plants that are where the seeds and the nutrients are a 
effectively regenerated by livestock yes. marching over them and pooping, pooping all over the place. Yep. And though and they then provide nutrients, really important nutrients that help to fortify our foods and then the foods sprout up again with some amount of time in between. Yep. This is a cycle that is what fuels humankind mm -hmm. in a in a modern way. Mm -hmm. When we do not have the availability of broad val you know, broad landscapes to navigate with bows and arrows. Mm. Um to suggest that in modern times we would eat only meat would also suggest that we would no longer have value for these farms. Because what are we going to mm. do with the vegetables well, we're growing, right? Like if we yeah. were literally to, like what would that do to the ecosystem of having a whole bunch of animals that are domesticated for us, billions of people to eat when there also weren't that many yeah. human beings on the planet? Like it just doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't fit anymore, yeah. even though it may have worked in that period of time and definitely is a period of human existence that makes perfect, in my opinion, makes perfect sense. Yeah. Navigating yeah. it for modernity is is, is it's, new. It's a big challenge, yeah. And Selv, you know, they, there are a lot of people who get very passionate um, with him about the discussion around two things, affordability of this life practice of eating this meat and then also the sustainability of it. And for the record, I'll speak for Paul here for a moment. He does speak extensively about regenerative farming. Regenerative farming. Yeah. He's a huge advocate of it. Yeah. Um, he is absolutely sold and convinced and preaches that that is the way forward for the health of the planet and the health of humanity, for sure. And and I agree with that. That said, I think there's some challenges. We've got, I'm rounding up a little bit, but I think we've got 8 billion people on this planet. Yeah. Now, when I drive through Utah, I'm thinking, We've got all kinds of room, but I know yeah. that a lot of Utah, you can't grow stuff in because yeah. it's just a scorching desert. And <clears throat> there are places in the world that are really overcrowded. And if I went to. Yeah. Which speaks to eating locally, right? Like. Yes. It speaks to, which is, which is sort of something that um, in my own decisions on, on how to eat meat, when to eat meat, where I'm getting it from, yeah. or, or not just meat, but also animal products. Mm. We live in Colorado. Um, if I were to return to or if I were to be a native people on these lands, whatever, a hundred years ago, I would eat what was local to me, right? Mm -hmm. And um, in my like modern life, I sort of try to reserve that to like, cool, if I can get it within a hundred or 150 miles, like I feel like that's pretty local because that's, mm -hmm. that's like my life, right? Because I could ride my bike that far and get it. I could ride my bike that far and get it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there are some beans that grow here. There are some grains that grow here, but not all grains. Yeah. Avocados do not grow here. Bananas do not grow here. Coconuts do not grow here. And but, but I like avocados so much. I and I and I buy them. <laughs> I do buy them. Um, but to exist as a human being in our high desert environment mm -hmm. is to consume animal products in some form, whatever that is. Um, if I was a native person wandering around, I would need to eat meat to survive the winter here. I wouldn't yeah. be able to just survive on we don't beans have the or tofu yeah. alone. Tofu is not something that, you know, other, these meat, like a meat substitute product, like the burgers that you can buy in a package, like. The Impossible Burger. Impossible Burger, burger whatever it is, like that's, whatever, I don't know what that is. That's a hyper processed <laughs> I, I food. It's to me, it's the same thing yeah. as any super processed food. Yeah. The more processed food it is, Oh, yeah. Generally speaking, the worse it is for you. I 100% agree. If we're talking about Intamin's Donuts, yeah. an Impossible Burger. Sort of the or same. Or a Twinkie. Yeah. Or yeah. a gel. Yeah. Those are the same. same thing. Yeah. In, in <laughs> Actually, I've almost reduced this to if it's convenient. <laughs> yeah. If it's convenient, it's Don't eat probably it. <laughs> not good for me. <laughs> probably not. <laughs> Which That's also true. is sort of like, you know, the mm. like, I guess I'm going to take the long way. I was thinking in the shower this morning, I was running through some of your questions and thinking about the time mm. that I trained for an Ironman on a surly cross check with nubby tires. 
which I really did. I won. Nice. I also set the course record, but I wow. trained for this dumb thing on this bike that does not make any sense. And it's what it, you had. And it was what I had, and it worked. Yeah. And it was the longest, it was the longest, hardest route. But th but with respect to food, sometimes, like, honestly, the the closer you look and the harder you have to work to put it into your body is probably the right answer, right? And that does, I mean, th this and book I'm writing is basically right now, right now there's 180 recipes. We'll narrow it significantly. <laughs> um, mm. But 180 recipes of things that in a super busy lifestyle you can turn into whole balance. real food yeah. that create a balance of things that like inspire you hopefully to eat locally and consider the sources of your ingredients mm. but it doesn't have to be it doesn't the cooking part doesn't have to be that consuming you don't have to be cooking but, for three hours to do this no is that what you're but saying? the sourcing yeah. process is sometimes it requires maybe mean, maybe hard not harder but it's just a different way of thinking yeah and we tend to get in the car, go to the store, buy whatever's there. Yeah. And when you go to the store, you're buying fish that's at least a week old. Yeah. Most of the time you're buying factory farm, factory industrialized raised chickens, cows, pork. Yeah. Which is, to be blunt, it's not, it's definitely not an ideal choice. In worst case, it's toxic, straight up. We're buying vegetables that have been in cold storage, fruits that have been in cold storage, that are have total disregard for seasoning, and they've also been most of the time genetically modified to make the shelf life longer and yeah. to help them survive and make the skins tougher. Yeah. When I was a kid, you could take any banana and break the top off and the top would break off. Break off. Try it. it Try it from a regular like banana. You have to almost always get a knife or you smash the top of the banana getting the top off. Yeah. Why is that? That's not just because you got a crappy banana. No, it's, it's because they've literally, changed. it's because we've literally, actually, so there's a, I'm forgetting the origin of the article now, but I'll, I'll send it to you because mm. it's fascinating because yeah. you've made this example. And that is that we've literally bred, like the banana that you find in the grocery store is is literally something that humans created. It's not something that you- Same would, with baby carrots. Yeah, well, yeah. Ba baby carrots are a little bit different because they literally go through this shaving process where you shave them into a cute shape. Ugh. And and so then there's all this carrot waste. Right. That then gets turned into something, whatever. But, the, <laughs> but if you are wandering through the forest or the jungle, you're never gonna find the bananas that you're used to seeing in the grocery store because we've literally created them to be our grocery banana, store. grocery store bananas. And at some point in time, mm -hmm. there will be a shift where nature pushes back and is like, cool, this is no longer sustainable for me. I'm gonna stop mm -hmm. allowing this thing to exist. And bananas could end up being the worst thing on the planet, literally for you, because nature's like, nope, no, Full yeah. Stop. yeah. Yeah, yeah, but the, um, but so, you know, also we were talking about the nutrients in the soil. Mm. Uh, when you're buying vegetables that, you know, the eat more plants thing, like, but also eat more plants, smart plants, because if you're buying vegetables from most grocery stores that have traveled hundreds and maybe even thousands of miles, um, they're typically being grown on farms that can support that sort of agriculture. And they're on being grown in fields that have been tilled over year after year after year where there's, there's almost yeah. no value. The, to the soil. Yeah. Something. Which our makes a sick crop, which necessitates more more pesticides, more fungicides, more red mm -hmm. pesticides, because well, when a sick crop can't defend itself. It's well, or moreover, you have folks that are like, cool, so I am gonna make the healthiest choice. I'm gonna eat a salad mm -hmm. that has, and I love to keep, obviously I love the example of salad, right? Like the fixation on salad. Mm -hmm. um, a salad today has something like 60 to 70% fewer nutrients than the salad of even 20 years ago. Yeah. So if you're only eating salad and not eating any of these other beautiful things, you're actually consuming nothing mostly rabbit air food. and air water, and water. Yeah. yeah so Nutrient going to your grocery like yeah. i actually was one of the things i think would be so rad and now i'm all my my wellspring of time without a book manuscript on my lap <laughs> uh so many of my 
athletic friends here in town will not go to the farmer's market in the morning because it's Saturdays mornings and they're off riding and they're bikes. off going to ride bikes. And so what I really want to do is figure out a way that we can get farmers to pack up boxes so that it can just be at a restaurant or at a spot where, where athletes where will be able anyway. to go and get what you're picking. Mm-hmm. You know, like either you dedicate the time and you ride one hour later, which you could do, which is what I end up doing being like, I'm just going to ride at nine. It's going to be fine. Mm-hmm. It might be a little hotter, but it's okay. But it wouldn't be so rad if some place in town would have a pickup spot for athletes to get home at one o'clock or two o'clock and their boxes would be there and then they could mm-hmm. go home and cook them anyway. That'd be great. Good idea. Cause like that's this. really, really, it's, it's really, really makes a massive difference in. Yeah and how, how your body feels and responds. I, I notice a big, a big like yeah. emotional difference when I don't get to go to the market or, and also just we sleep better, we yeah. eat better, yeah. the food tastes better. Yeah. I wanna just emphasize one point if I may. I think that it's potentially easy for people to listen to our discussion and feel perhaps a bit overwhelmed. Yes. And I wanna emphasize that Diet is not about perfection. It's not a scorecard. It's not a, I have to revamp everything. You have to respect the fact that you've already been on this planet for presumably at least two decades, Mm -hmm. maybe three, maybe four, maybe five. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's a lot of history and emotion that's tied into your food choices. Mm -hmm. So we don't expect or ask that anyone suddenly go completely cold turkey and forget every food that they ever bought at King Supers or whatever Mm -hmm. their local grocery store is that they've been shopping at for decades and only eat farmed animals from here on out and make a radical change. Like yeah. every once in a while you run to a person who's capable of doing that and will do it, but most of us aren't like that and that's no. okay. Yeah. Making dietary choices is about, it's about just slowly optimizing. It's like, a think of it like a never ending quest to always just refine, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, but guilt is a suitcase. So just, yeah. there's no value or what we're not trying to do is paint a paradigm where you're constantly berating yourself for suboptimal no. choices. No. Because Which can happen really easily too, it's right? It's so easy to because fall Because once mindset. you recognize that there's so much nuance, yes. there's so much nuance. And so not and so now if you had questions before about what to eat, now, now you, you have one more million lost. more questions about what yeah. to eat. And did I do this like did I add this up the right way? And and sort mm-hmm. of recognizing that there, you know, I don't I think now because well let's see. I started thinking about food when I was sixteen. Mm-hmm. And I'm almost 40 years old. Mm-hmm. So that's a long time of considering all those things and, and compounding knowledge and yeah. and making small shifts. And I still find small, you know, like I still have had magnanimous shifts in the way that I look and think about food in even in the past five, well, or five years. And yeah. to recognize that that's really like a lifelong practice of just yeah. embracing the fact that like basically like food's okay. Food's okay. Food's okay. Mm-hmm. It's not an enemy. It's not uh, it's not a villain, it's, you know, it's really easy. It's the opposite. And it's really easy to look for things that look like food and consume those things Mm -hmm. and recognize you can really eat freely within that. Mm -hmm. And that's, if that, if you start in one place, like that's where I would say you start, you like look for the things that look like what you would recognize them to be. And if you don't know what something is like, find out, right? Find out or, and if you still can't find out, don't eat it. Don't it's, eat it. Yeah. Or, and and ultimately just like, I would say the the easiest place to start, although it, I think it's easy now because I've been ingrained in it a really long time. And I, for, especially if you're a busy person, a mom, or mm. I'm thinking specifically of moms, because I know there like lots of cooking philosophies in many homes now are to unpack something and warm it up, right? Yeah. If you can find a way to shift your kitchen practice or your day-to-day practice where you can avoid packages so that you're just looking at things that are whole, even if it means you're just, you're eating salad and rice for a while. Yeah. 
that's a really good place that's to start. Forward. Yeah. yeah, and then you, and then there are recipes like there are really. I'm going to give you so many ha- so many good hacks, but yeah. there are ways that you can turn those things into really wholesome meals. But pushing out that one big villainous category, the only villain is is the non-food. And we have a lot of it. Processed food. Yeah, we have yeah. a lot of it running around. And everything else it's, is fair game. It's the it's the norm right now. You go into a supermarket and 85, 90% of it is in boxes and oh, packaged yeah. and processed and maybe more depending on the supermarket. Yeah. Um, my Which tagline is, for that is picked, peeled, caught, or skinned. If you can do those things to it, then yeah. it's eligible to go in your mouth. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I 100%. I mean, and it's also, it's hard, like, we're also backpedaling a lot as a society, right? Because if... Mm. I mean, it's funny, Pete and I talk about this often. Um, our What was in vogue when our moms were raising us was to use the microwave yeah. to warm things. That was what you, like, cool, I figured out this cool time hack where all I have to do is this. And now you so can hire convenient. a service that's going to deliver packaged meals to optimized meals to your door. Or they're going to chop everything for you and, and send it mm. to you with a recipe, right? Yeah. Um, that speaks to the, like, it's, it's. I think, you know, in the book, I, we talked about this a moment ago or a little while ago, mm-hmm. that I implore readers to design a life cocktail and you're basically creating priorities. Yes. You're basically saying like, here's all the stuff that I got on my plate. It's a real full plate. I don't know how, like, if you're building a plate of food, you have to, if you're building a nutritious plate of food as an athlete, you've got to figure out where you, what your priorities are. Am I prioritizing energy, rebuilding, like fat, like function, whatever, whatever it is. And the same is true in your life. Mm-hmm. And if eating better or performing better or feeling better is something that you prioritize, there has to be a space that's created for sourcing your food well. There's no way to, yeah. there's, that's not a place where you can cut the budget. You can totally cut the budget in terms of how much time you spend on Instagram or yeah. how much time you spend online shopping or how much strife you, how much energy you put towards fearing food and making the wrong food choices. And mm. you can just dive into that like, Cool. I'm going to go pick yeah. up some whole stuff and I'm going to be brave and make it into a salad with rice. Yeah. Yeah. Or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. Very well said. I think if we take the extension of that, we have this type of person who maybe there are people who don't want to deal with food. It's not part of their culture. It's not part of the reality. Maybe they have negative associations with food as a young child, perhaps. So they've it's learned pain in the to butt. sort of. Cooking is hard. Cooking a is a pain. <laughs> they don't want to deal with it because they've got kids and jobs yeah. and other stuff to deal with. So they want convenience. And I understand that mindset. The ultimate, I think, I'll just say it straight point blank. The, dis- the most disastrous outcome of this is Soylent. Oh, yes. Right? Yeah. This is like that thinking taken to the extreme, which yeah. if you don't know what Soylent is, I'll let you just go forth and search it. But it's yeah. like, this is the opposite of everything Lentine and I are talking about today. Yeah. It's the most, it's, it's a food source you can imagine with no regard for chi or life force or sustenance in yeah. any enriching sense yeah. at all. Yeah. Um, so don't, consume Soylent, please. Or, and, and, <laughs> or just don't tell us about it. <laughs> <laughs> don't tell, I don't want to hear about it. Yeah. But I think, you know, the, the, like, and we keep, I'm talking a little bit in circles about this, but, or perhaps I am. The, once you get all that, you know, like going to the market and picking up all this stuff or wherever you're getting it from, right? Going to your trusted source, picking up the best ingredients you can find. And that's key, right? The best ingredients you can find yep. is the right answer. Not, yes. Yes. Just, it, not the definition that I give, not the way that I'm doing it at my house. Agreed. The way that, you and and the way that you can know you're doing it right is that you come home with something you're proud of fresh it, local 
organic hopefully, ideally. Hopefully, right? All those, ideally, hopefully. right? But the best ingredient, that's a perfect way to say yeah, it. Hopefully, yeah, hopefully, but also that might mean that you're that you're not buying, that you're not going and ordering a salad out, you're buying a box of salad that's organic and maybe yeah. it's, you know, like there's so many different layers of how this will, how this would translate for yourself. But ultimately you want to bring it home and be like, wow, Look what I did. I feel good about this. Mm-hmm. That you will know you're on the right path when you feel good about what you've purchased, and it, it and it's not just a non-issue. Like mm-hmm. if you unpack the groceries and you're like, Ugh, right? Probably there's Don't something there's something that's maybe off, right? But mm-hmm. coming home with ingredients that you're proud of, and the act of cooking something and serving yourself or serving somebody else and being like, look at this thing I made, even if it didn't turn out exactly the way the recipe did. Mm -hmm. There is an emotional connection there that in my personal opinion, if you start kicking the door open enough, is powerful enough to keep you coming back and doing it every Mm -hmm. once in a while. And if you're doing it every once in a while, that is enough Mm -hmm. to make a change where you start feeling something different. And that will prove positive in your performance and your general well-being in life. And, And it's even if you're doing it only once a week, which like, so, so there's two people in our house. Pete's gone for a week riding his motorcycle. Mm. I cook for a living. I don't actually cook for myself every single night. In fact, I will figure out ways to not have to do that because I would rather be reading a book, going on a bike ride, mm-hmm. doing something else. I love food. I think that c- cooking is the high, one of the highest priorities in my life, but I will make a big batch of soup on Sunday and, yeah. I, and a big batch of grains and maybe I'll make beans in my instant pot and I will keep those things in the fridge and I'll throw greens into them mm-hmm. and I will eat that way for a whole week. Mm-hmm. And I've cooked once and I feel really good about my choice for the whole, about my choice and my investment in myself mm-hmm. for the entire week. And that is how I do that with a very, with a, you know, totally packed schedule. And I will still cook almost every single thing that we eat, but not by spending hours cooking every single day. Or even an hour. Or even one yeah. hour. Like right. I, you know, I can't wait to actually spend almost zero time cooking for myself this week. That's a great, yeah, I'm so looking forward to the release of your book so I can <laughs> pick up on some of these hacks because we, yeah, I feel like my family eats really well, but we we tend to annihilate time in the kitchen. And and I'm okay with that, but yeah. I wouldn't mind having some more yeah. arrows in my quiver to on those days where things are really crazy. Yeah, where yeah. things are crazy and all, and giving yourself the break of like, you know, I mean, and, and, and it's funny because my editor and I are both the types of people where we know we have enough culinary skills where we really, um, we hold a lot of responsibility for what we do in our own home. You know, my like, and and this is totally out of whack with a normal person, but like my general cooking workload would be to make everything from scratch in our house. And that means the nut butter is something I made, the beans are something I made, yeah. I made the grains, I bake our own bread. If we're eating ice cream, I made it. You're finding if, the foods in the most simple raw ingredients, bringing them into your door, and mm-hmm. then making mm-hmm. stuff out of mm-hmm. that. Yeah. But also, we're not eating ice cream every night. Right. And there's also days when we don't have bread, and we make oatmeal or have something else instead. Mm-hmm. But pretty much, if it's coming through the door, like I made it, and and I had to learn in the process of writing this book to let go of some of those keys mm-hmm. and find a source where I could say, like, cool, like. You know, we've got great bakers in town and I will buy your bread from you. And yeah. I feel really good about buying your bread because yeah. it's because it is saving me the time and the stress of I want to do this and I want to do it right. And I trust that you're doing it right. Mm-hmm. But not having that trust with your source makes a really big those compounded of like I'm making this like I'm making this hack. I'm hacking again. I'm hacking. I'm hacking. I'm hacking every single thing in our lives. Mm-hmm. One way of connecting and we were talking about this before, like knowing that the connection is important. One way of connecting to nature really easily is cooking it. Mm. Oh, well, well said, yeah. Taking ingredients that were farmed right around the corner from you, even if you spend all day inside, mm-hmm. you wake up in the dark, you go to work, we're in your home. 
Yep. No, yeah, <laughs> you're yeah. not going anywhere. But, <laughs> but and if you pick your head up again and you cook something that was grown by a farmer, not that far away from you, you are touching nature. You're connecting nature. That's yeah, yeah. And that counts. Mm. You Very win. Well said. Yep. I think that's a perfect place to end. Um, that said, I want to rewind and maybe we can put this in a different order later. But there's one thing I want to ask you about. One last bit, if you still have time. Yeah. Are you good? Yeah. I okay. think so. I don't know what time it is. So yeah. I don't either. Who cares? So. <laughs> <laughs> we, one, okay, you've given us a lot of really good insightful advice on how we might change our relationship to food and, and how we think about food. I think one area where people might get a little lost mm -hmm. is, I would say that most of the advice we've been giving is assuming, making certain assumptions conceptually about a person's gut biome. Yeah. If someone's got a relatively functional gut, yeah. and then we're talking about, uh, moderation in all things, yeah. you know, a little bit of ice cream, some carbs, some fat, some proteins, as long as we're sourcing high quality ingredients, that's a great philosophy. But most people aren't starting from that point. Most people are starting with a little bit of a broken gut or a little bit of a challenge because they have been eating inflammatory foods. They've got some, some challenges in their digestion. Yeah. I'll actually go one, for, one step further and say yeah. that it's safe to assume that every single person walking around in American society has a bad gut. Yeah. Because, and, and that's not something to feel bad about necessarily. We've kind of done it to ourselves. We're eating industrialized food. Mm. We, it, it lacks nutrients um, because of the ways that, that food's been made available to us, right? We're learning a lot about the importance of local agriculture, regenerative agriculture, eating close to land, eating close to home right now. Mm. Um, and convenience has been in vogue for a really long time. And we didn't really recognize the consequences of it until now we're seeing that we're, there's a lot of chronic disease and autoimmune disorders that are popping up as a result of our bodies being able to function for a really long time mm -hmm. as a collective society without, without gut health. Mm -hmm. So yeah. that's, that said, like as a person who struggled with that myself, almost everyone I know has different types of symptoms in it. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't, I don't know of anybody I don't know of anybody who doesn't have some. Yeah. And also recognize that that fluctuates through, like for women, our gut biomes fluctuate when we have, like through our menstrual cycles. Yeah. So yeah. your gut biome is healthier in different points of time mm -hmm. than in other times. So it's and, not- And also the nutrient composition should change during the cycle, right? Yes. I mean, Stacey yes. Hems talks a lot about this. Yes, Less I think it's more carbs. More carbs. I say that, I I say sure that, that because, my, yeah. yeah. I, well, so, maybe, like for women that are listening, um, yeah. additional estrogen in our bodies mm -hmm. is digested by our, by our guts mm. and if you're experiencing you know to be very blunt about it if you're mm -hmm. experiencing premenstrual symptoms mm -hmm. whatever it is tender breasts cramping all that sort of thing it's basically a sign that your body's not digesting that estrogen in a proper way and that's a symptom that you that there's something that you can fix in your gut and when you have mm -hmm. it in balance hi hypothetically speaking you won't have those symptoms right. as someone who's had a really sorted menstrual history and has been able to overcome it with a lot of attention paid to gut health mm. and eating a lot of carbohydrates mm -hmm. in the time when your body's like, cool, I've just completely cleansed and I am now going to rebuild. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That's great. That's a great seed. Planted little, for little seed to, planted. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot more. And, and, and you can't take a pill and make that go away. Yes, you can. You can just take the birth control pill. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. <sighs> <laughs> um, maybe anyway so yeah. so gut health so yes so pr making the presumption that you know yes if you have a healthy gut you could sort of dive in there but that said mm -hmm. as a person who doesn't necessarily um subscribe to any specific type of diet i am definitely a believer in 
you know, as we talked about, kind of navigating the broad avenue of foods, mm-hmm. cutting things out, seeing how your body responds on a somewhat frequent basis just yep. to see where you're at. Um, I personally, at least twice a year, go and do basically a Panchakarma cleanse, which cuts out. I, I don't eat that much refined sugar as it is. I don't consume that much alcohol. Occasionally I do. Mm-hmm. Um, I incorporate small amounts of all, you know, caffeine. I have a cup of coffee in the morning. I have an alcoholic drink at night, Mm -hmm. one usually. Um, I'm eating predominantly unrefined natural sugars, but I do consume them. And for about a month in the spring and in the fall, I cut those things completely out and sort of hit reset. And it's amazing what happens when Mm -hmm. you do that. Every time I've done it the past couple of years, my body's in a different state of being and uh, almost always my gut bounces. Like I notice something significant that changes in my gut. Yeah. Um, and that also includes things like um, cutting out dairy every once in a while, mm-hmm. cutting out grains, cutting out a specific type of vegetable, you know, like maybe it's tomatoes, maybe it's kale, just mixing it up. Like one of the ways that when, when I, I do some culinary coaching, helping people to kind of navigate how to cook in the kitchen and, and athletes, how to build plates that will fuel their athletic endeavors, not from a sports nutrition perspective or from the perspective of a nutritionist or a dietitian, mm-hmm. just from a cool, you've got this amount of time. Here's ways that you can incorporate these healthy ingredients into your diet. Mm-hmm. Make this happen. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the kind of checklists that I give are there's like a micronutrient checklist and also a macronutrient checklist of like, have you thought about these things? Mm. But also how many colors are you eating? When we were living in Japan, I learned through a friend that mothers pack their lunches for their kids. But if the lunchbox arrives at school and there are not eight colors, yeah. eight colors yeah. in each child's lunchbox, and also like things that are shaped like a panda, they, <laughs> then they're basically given an F. Like they've just failed at packing lunch for kiddos because color is really, really important. And texture too, like mm-hmm. having, you know, four or five different textures in your plate is one really easy way of just going like, great, I'm getting a variety of things and switching those things up from time to time. It's like a really easy way to go grocery shopping. You're like, great, I've got eight colors. I've got mm-hmm. something creamy, something crunchy, something crisp, whatever. Yep. That's one way of finding out where your gut is mm-hmm. and also consulting with with medical professionals or Ayurvedic professionals or naturopaths yeah. that can help you to navigate that. Um, more and more I'm seeing lots of supplements that folks are taking. Hey, just take prebiotics or just take probiotics. Yeah. Hey, cool. But these are things that have again, we've like dissected from the foods where they came from and our bodies are smart enough to, to request the foods that contain what they need to function. So mm. learning about the foods that contain probiotics, learning about what prebiotics are. By the way, there are specific foods that you're, that prebiotics need, or excuse me, that probiotics need to function. Right. Giving those things, like I love the example of athletes that have digestive distress on the bike and they're consuming a, um, maybe it's a sugar-based or, uh, yeah, basically a sugar-based uh, sports drink, right? Mm-hmm. And there's no focus on prebiotic, which mm-hmm. is the food that probiotics need to survive. And that comes from turmeric, comes from ginger, it comes from lots of roots, basically. Eating a ginger candy, yeah. that's, you know, maybe it's maybe it's sugar, but it also contains this, pre, this prebiotic, right. helps to soothe your system again and sort of stop this, this explosion of negative gut bacteria. Yeah. It starts to bring balance again. It's just a small thing, but it, it, definitely does help things can make a big difference yeah Yeah. so um yeah i think it's safe to assume i think it's also it's safe to assume that we all have a little something messed up in our bodies almost all the time because we live a modern life you know i'm raising my hand yeah me too i've got digestive trouble would probably be the 
the single biggest recurring theme in my, well, I was going to say athletic career, but mm-hmm. um, careers in air quotes. We'll just say time on the planet. Yeah. Mine it's too. independent of that. Yeah. Mine too. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I work with an Ayurveda practitioner mm. pretty closely. And I think that I see her maybe five or six times a year for a variety of different things. Okay. But one of my biggest questions for her, always, like this particular season, there were, you know, I'm just talking specifically about my own experience in the past six to nine months. Um, super stressful professionally. Like the weather's been crazy. So much going on in the world. Lots of stress. Mm-hmm. Like for for my particular constitution that I run pretty hot. My metabolism's pretty high. Mm-hmm. A lot of heat. A lot of heat in my body. And I suffered from really difficult digestion, really difficult sleep all through, the, basically from May through August or September. So... We were doing our best. Like I was kind of consulting with her on how to cool my body down. Yep. And a few of the things that she recommended to me, you know, and and my gut went from being very healthy to being very stressed out. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. we've able, been able to bring it back now. But the things yep. that soothed it were doing doing things that sound crazy, like um, blending up yogurt with ice and mixing in a bit of ghee and a bit of black pepper and having one day a week when I don't do any physical activity. I drink this thing. As, me- as much as I want. Yeah. And I w- so I would eat dinner, basically, eat dinner at night, wake up in the morning, drink what we were calling this buttermilk cleanse, mm-hmm. which was ghee and yogurt, yeah. all through the day and then eating dinner at night. And that was enough to basically keep the fire in my body at bay. And then eating really, really seasonally, like lots of cucumbers, lots of cooling foods, lots of sweet foods, yeah. uh, melon, um, tender ve- tender vegetable, like tender greens, cooked spinach, which mm. helps to eliminate some of the bitterness. Bitterness also will cool that heat. But yeah. um, that wisdom, that like ancient food wisdom has really helped me to harness my gut and wrap my mind around what it's doing and how it responds in different scenarios. And it's, a, and it's highly personal and super nuanced and it's just a different way, a different lens to look at food, it's right? It's a different lens to from look our, at food. From yeah. us being Western yeah. peoples. Yeah. yeah. But I will say, I don't think that it's possible. It's a really important component of, of fueling your body right. Mm-hmm. Because uh, for, so to back up and add an, another layer of mm-hmm. this discussion, um, uh, for a long time, I was, I was obviously like super in tune with food eating lots and lots of plants, not limiting carbohydrates, but very conscious of my carbohydrate sources. If I was in places where I couldn't get sources that I recognized, I would choose not to eat them. Mm. Not the right choice necessarily, but mm-hmm. anyway. <laughs> part of the lesson. Part of the lesson. Um, and being really, really critical of my protein sources. And that meant I was eating a lot of plants at certain times in my life, depending on where I was living. And I've lived in quite a few places. Uh, that caught up with me later. Uh, having, you know, once I left Scratch Labs, I was jumped out on my own, was doing consultancy work, traveling a ton, still not competing, but training and just like living life at a pretty high level, really long bike rides, occasionally doing some big races. Um, And eventually I started to notice that I wasn't sleeping very well, really not sleeping very well. Um, I would get on the bike and have no energy. Like I just couldn't go could not turn the pedals Mm. and I started having some skin issues too stuff like just things started popping up and I went to the doctor and they ran a blood test they found that I was severely deficient in vitamins d and b 
And it wasn't that I wasn't consuming the foods that contain those things. It was that my body was not absorbing them. Right. And here I'm eating these very, very virtuous, like locally sourced ingredients. You know, I'm ch- I think I'm checking all the blocks. But what I was doing wrong was recognizing that there was some amount of rest and attention that I needed to give my body to just digest my food. Mm. I could not run full speed ahead through life and expect to digest my experiences or my nutrients. Mm. So cutting back on activity a little bit. Mm-hmm being more, basically creating more space for meals that I was eating. Like, cool, I'm gonna sit down and like actually enjoy my breakfast instead of eating it while I'm doing something else or eating it while I'm already in production, right? Mm. And uh, eating a lot fewer kale salads, Mm. honestly, giving my body foods that were really easy for it to digest. Over a series of months, the kind of like skin issues and eczema that I was experiencing went away. Mm. My energy levels came back, my blood levels came back. And what it really took was recognizing that Rec- like the recognition that my body was functioning as a whole unit and that my and that the way my gut was able to absorb those things it was strong enough to do it without i didn't have to take medications i didn't need to take i didn't need to take any supplements right. i was able to do it totally with food but it took a big focus on going okay how can i soothe my digestive system how can i give it what it needs and recognize that what it's not doing what i'm not doing is giving it the time necessary yeah. to absorb easily the ritual around food is really yeah. important especially as athletes it's so easy to just be like wham 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 because you you sit down half the time you're starving to death yeah as an and, athlete who loves food and loves a ritual around food yeah right <laughs> and has made a career out of that right yeah 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 it, it, it so so i i would say like to implore people to really think about it and mm. and and on the on the plate of priorities know that it's a really important priority all the time and and governs our ability to do almost anything else yeah right like like when I was at Scratch, we'd talk about poop all the time. Like talking yeah. about poop's really important, by the way. Like mm-hmm. looking at your poop is pretty important. Thinking yeah. about your poop is pretty important. Like takes two seconds. Takes two seconds. Yeah. You know, just a peek. <laughs> to understand what how the What's meals happening. you've been eating are mm-hmm. are impacting your body. That's a yeah. very valuable If it's part. running straight through you, it's running straight through you. You're yeah. not benefiting. Yeah. You're not getting nutrients. Paul has a literally a chapter in his book, How to Eat, Move and Be Healthy, Paul Check up yeah. and it, he literally has a poopy policeman drawing yeah. with a lineup and descriptions that talk about each type of bowel movement you can have and what went wrong and some clues on where to investigate. It's, yeah. And um, he talks all the time about how kids love to like cut that page out and put tape it <laughs> over the toilet so they can yeah. Yeah. check it out. But, but that, you know, again, like hopefully it's empowering to know that it it is a factor in all of our lives. It is yeah. something that as a modern person we can expect. We're all suffering from a little bit. Mm. And the extent to which we're able to pay attention to it and mm. – Kind of nip it in the butt early and just you know give it some attention. Yeah. It may, in my opinion, in my experience, means of means the difference between um, having a chronic disease or issue and being able to nip it in the butt and really being able to figure out how to fuel your body and yeah. and navigate your life with food in it powerfully and and in an empowered way. Because unless you're a breatharian, you're going to eat food. Yeah, right? breatharian. Yeah, I've not heard that one before. Oh wow, it's apparently it's a thing. Yeah, there are people who claim to be brethren. Monks, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They just yeah. subsist off. Uh, we'll get there. Do of a ginkgo leaf. <laughs> the do of a ginkgo leaf. Universe juice. Yeah. Yeah. So. But yeah. Cool. Well, Lentine, thank you so much for taking thank a you guys. large portion of your day to come and My pleasure. talk with us. And we're so excited for the release of your book. You'll have to let us know Thanks. what the title is yeah. when it comes out, when you get it ironed out. I'm sure it's going to include the word inclusive in it now. Yeah, probably. Um, that's my own little little ego stamp on that guy <laughs> but whatever it is uh let us know and we'll we'll um drop this episode in a timely fashion but then maybe we can redrop it when your book comes out and 
and have the title. Maybe the we'll have more new things to talk about. We got I'm 14 sure we months. Will. Yeah. Creating a cookbook is crazy. It's like you could have two children. You could have two <laughs> human children. You could you could gestate and give birth to two human children in the time it takes to do this. Wow. To create it into a guide that's actually good for you. It, that's actually functional for people to use. But yeah. by that time, you know, hopefully there's lots of things for us to talk about. And it'll I'm be a sure. whole different. I think people are going to be cooking more. I hope so. I you know I think it's been challenging times obviously in 2020. Um, not so much bike racing. A lot yeah. of lockdown. A lot of. I've been really struggling. And then the last week even I felt this kind of the level, the subtext of fear I felt has risen, risen. in the last yeah. few few weeks. I, I don't know if it's because the election's coming or what. It's It just seems yeah. like things are so politicized and so people are just butting heads in so many ways. And yeah. it's, um, f- from my own perspective, it just inspires me to walk through the world with a little bit of a smile and say good morning to people because I'm yeah. trying to calm the pond as best I can. Yeah. I won't say I'm always perfectly, perfectly successful in that endeavor, but... That's my that's my intent, and um, yeah. but you know I think that some of the medicine that's come out of this experience has been a like for example we shop from Boulder Lamb and Meats that's yeah. Clint's farm, and you know farms like like these used to primarily sell directly to local restaurants that wanted to have a farm to table menu, mm-hmm. and because restaurants had obviously a significant hit to their business this spring and this summer, a lot of those farms have now turned to selling direct to consumer and yeah. that's and they're relying on us to, they, sur- to survive they are and i will patronize these farms because to me they are really important yeah. um and i'm in a position to do that financially but it's an absolute priority in my life to eat well and, and eat my help my family eat well from my perspective it's almost like look man i'm going to spend the mon- money one way or another i'm either going to spend it on really healthy food now which by the way tastes better yeah I mean, remember the first time you ever had real organic peanut butter and you'd only been eating Jif or Skippy? <laughs> like my head yeah. exploded when that yeah. happened. Yeah. That's This is that experience, but with every other food you've ever bought at a grocery store. Yeah. Like everything is better when it's local organic. Yeah. Everything is. The meat is totally different. All you need is like sea salt and olive oil and light you heat. Actually you actually also eat less. But you, that, that, you that's, less. that's a piece that we didn't touch on actually, which is the budget. Yeah. The budgetary portion of um, of eating well and that, and that's a that's something that's notable right it's a real problem it is um the accessibility of truly exceptional food to all people mm-hmm. in our country right now is horrible it's dismal. It, and that's the, in our country that's in our country yeah it's and other and it's embarrassing second third world countries i can only imagine it's just yeah i mean it, it almost flip-flops in a sense because when you get to the some very remote areas of the world all they have is access to local food. Well, so there's this yeah, weird in fact, U-shaped curve to it, right? Or yeah. N-shaped curve, however you want to. Yeah. yeah. I mean, lo- only in the United States, actually, mm. is eating locally something that mm. we should pay attention to, we need to return to. Because mm. everywhere else does not see any value. Like, most of the things that we've been talking about in terms of how we navigate food are strictly American conventions. You're right. There is no other country in the world that's like, cool, the, I'm going to bring this thing from... Argentina. Argentina to, you know, in some... Well, now in, like... China say like they're bringing in ingredients from all over the world because they're f- modeling our Western lifestyle yeah. where it's yeah. luxurious to be able to enjoy something out of season whenever you want it. Right. But the idea that we would be, you know, eating locally, supporting our local economy, and that's the most logical way to. It, it like, is. You don't have a huge refrigerator in fr- in most other countries, so you buy right. what you need from the place that's close because you don't have a car and to you drive shop you at the market every couple yeah. days. Yeah. Yeah. But the but in the United States, there is a distinct investment that one needs to make because of the way that subsidies exist and because of our industrialized food system. You can eat very very cheaply 
in the United States, or or you can put consumables. You can put consumables on your table for relatively little money in yeah, the United States with less nutrient density and less. Yeah, it's but shit food. but there is a but there yeah. is a there's yeah. a price to pay for that. And mm-hmm. and if you have the means, you're also able to access some of the best ingredients that, by the way, are not comparable in price, mm-hmm. or in my opinion, in value to those other things that you might consume. Yeah. And making that shift is a difficult one because uh, and and the entire country right now is facing an economic hardship where we're all having to reevaluate what we're spending money on. Yep. Um I know in my own house like I the restaurant industry, you know, well, in my own house we've had to reprioritize that again. Yep. And go great. So, you know, we so I go, will go and basically put up for the winter like mm. buy ingredients that I know I can turn into like my grandma used to do basically yeah. and go like cool we need to stretch this as far as we can we have this much money to spend this is that what we're spending on meat because it's expensive and the other times we're going to eat this other th- mm. we're going to eat vegetable foods mm-hmm. or we're going to eat plant foods or not mm. not vegetable foods we're going to we're going to eat plant-based foods and not so much meat because the meat's expensive yeah. and that's something that's I, I, I don't want this conversation to unfold without a rec- recognition that it is a prioritization and one that requires uh, an ima- a shift in the way that we're, you're putting, you know, your schedule resources does not, it's not yeah. to go over, overlooked. And especially in this moment when, when we have to kind of, we have the opportunity actually to repattern so many things in our lives. Yeah. It is, a, it, and, and because um, our restaurant industry and convenience food industry will take a big shift, it is a moment when it's going to be a little scary to go like, great, I'm now home with my kids who are no longer going to school and I want to do, I have all this list of things I want to do and now I have to cook also and now I have to source virtuous product. Like that's a very scary weight to be carrying. It adds to the to-do list. Yeah, it adds to the to-do list and it also, and it adds to the, to the expense that may not Mm -hmm. feel like it exists, but But as you said, you look at your plate of priorities. Yeah. Right. I think, I think from, for me anyway, being able to, I felt a real pull towards being able to support our local economy and being able to support our farmers here. Agreed. Um, Especially knowing, you know, having like one foot in the, I don't work in restaurants anymore, but having one foot in the restaurant industry and knowing how important that is, or not knowing how important that is, having one foot in the restaurant industry and record or in just the, the culinary world and recognizing that's an industry that's really in, in fear of going under right now. And that so many local farms and small farms that were providing exceptional product to put on a plate for special consumption now are looking for a place to sell their wares basically. Like I want my house to be the place where those special things land. Absolutely. There are not going to be fancy vacations for us in the near future. There are not, I don't have any need to buy fancy handbags or fancy shoes. I'm in my house in my jammies cooking. (laughs) And so that's the place that I'm, I'm investing. Yeah most of our resources and that feels like the right thing to do for right now and probably for me at least that will be the the right thing to do for a really long time but it's a small it's a small investment that we can make to feel really good about what's happening in the world there's still really beautiful things growing agreed yeah so from my perspective we can either choose to spend that money on healthier higher quality food choices or in the future i can spend it on doctor's bills and prescription medications and two of my life goals are spend as little time in a car as possible as little time in a hospital as possible yeah hospitals to me are like they're places i never ever want to be yeah ever for a variety of reasons i won't even unpack right now but i just yeah i really struggle with all of it so i'm just going to make it a life goal to avoid that and in my from my everything i've learned points me towards eating healthier food to help offset that now of course i can still go get hit by car or whatever yeah but um, well there are a million reasons there are a million reasons to prioritize better ingredients right like you can hit it from any direction like yeah 
and and to touch on what those might be first could be your first could be you're looking for for performance and this is the way for you to get the most nutrient dense and mm-hmm. like to mainline nutrients and and valuable life proving you know components into your body mm-hmm. that wasn't said very well but that's what you know what i'm saying yes so from a performance perspective like that's the answer if you're looking at it from an environmental perspective the less distance that your food has to travel the better off the like the more of an impact that you're making and there's a lot of reasons in this mm-hmm. specific moment mm-hmm. to be paying attention to the way that we're treating the environment and the way that we're honoring the environment agreed and then and you know you could also then look at like like those are the two biggest two biggest things but then from a from a like well-being perspective and like bolstering your life capital. Mm. If you are looking to do that and looking for answers for how to do it, like cooking for yourself and feeling really good about the choices that you're making, even if it has nothing to do with your performance and if you don't really give a shit about the environment or anyone else in it, yeah. if it's just about you, you <laughs> will feel better, your body will feel better and your and your your family will feel better when you invest that tiny amount of time in doing something for yourself. Mm-hmm. There is a there's a chemical like reaction to cooking and providing something for your family. Mm. So there's a few different reasons to do it that, yeah. and none, none of which involve, you know, the financial investment, right. but, right. but you get something out of it no matter which direction. No matter which direction from. you're looking yeah. at it from, yeah. Which is why it's a win-win, which is why I suggested that title for the book, but that's been declined. Mm. <laughs> it's a win-win-win then, but win-win-win. I don't think adding another win is gonna- Triple win. It's gonna convince Random House that that's a good idea. <laughs> well, like I said, uh, when the book comes out, let us know and we'll Will definitely do. blast out some more socials. And we'll make sure you have things. a copy. Oh, great. Wonderful. I think it's going to so be right up your alley. Yes. <laughs> Based on our conversation, I would agree. Lentine, thank you so much yeah. again for coming in. Thank you, in. guys. I really appreciate it's it. It's been a really wonderful conversation, and I'm sure uh, we'll have more to talk about in the future. Sounds good. Okay. Thanks, guys. You have my gratitude, listeners, for making it through a rather lengthy episode of our discussion today. Hope you found it enlightening and filled with nuggets of nutritional wisdom. Thanks to Lentine. Listen up monkeys. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the guest or me. They do not represent fast labs, fast talk, Chris case, Trevor Connor, Santa Claus, or anyone else. As always, Ride in flow and make good diet choices.